Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Vegetius. Talking about noobs. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagamalark. And I'm Thumbs. And today we're going to be talking to you about our first section of Vegetius's Military Institutions of the Romans. And honestly, we don't have much to say before we get into it. It's it's only actually been a week uh, since our last time recording. We're trying to get back on schedule with our with our recording schedule, and so we don't we haven't done that much. I've been playing a little bit of that Necromunda game. At this point, it's a little buggy on the Xbox, and I'm going to wait until maybe a patch or two comes out to continue playing it, because while the game itself is exceptionally fun, the fact that every time I complete a mission, it crashes and, like, doesn't save what I just did is a little infuriating. You know, you get done with this perfectly executed uh, plan, you're like barely a scratch on your dudes, and then suddenly it just drops you, and you're like, well... I was a lot of work, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and then on top of all that, there's been the smoke so bad everywhere. So we can't even really go outside and do stuff. Nope. And uh, I mean, I've been running bag drills uh, in my in my garage. We finally got it clean enough uh, in there because uh, uh, we, were, we were doing a couple of different projects trying to get some... Uh, some boards up and some uh, different tool benches installed and that sort of thing for for my mom and my wife to have some some good work stations. And so we finally got the floor a little bit clearer in there. And so I've been running bag drills, but I've been trying to do throw do so through a respirator. You know, I've got this this respirator that I used to use when I was in welding. And so I would I've been using that so that I can go out because I'm I'm I have a rather adverse reaction to the smoke, uh, and we're in it pretty thick here for the most part. So I've been going out there and wearing a respirator while I do my bag drills. And oh my gosh, because um, you know bag drills with a bunch of like hot clothing and a, and a weighted sword. I mean that's good cardio already. But then you add on top of it like a restricted breathing apparatus of some sort, and uh, yeah, it's it's great cardio. <laughs> I'm gonna take it off after the smoke is done and just. It'll be like that uh, that moment Goku emerges from like that that like gravity training place, and he's just kind of like ah, you know, that'll be me. I have a feeling Goku is going to come up like six times this episode. I'm not even fully sure why. You know, and I don't even watch Dragon Ball Z all that much. Like it's been years since I watched it. Have not seen it in probably a decade. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I, Goku's going to feature quite a bit here. But yeah, so the the bag drills are good. It's a good way to you know, try to stay in. Try to stay in shape a little bit while everything is going on. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the episode. But we actually, uh, that thrifty but nifty challenge we were recently running, finally got all the votes tallied. Yeah, it'll be up on the uh, on the social medias, to say that to make me sound as old as possible, a couple of weeks back now, because I'm posting it, you know, the day after we record this, which is three weeks in your past. 
but the Thrifty But Nifty contest, I mentioned it before, it is a contest that I was running through Art of Wargaming and a little bit with General Nerdery, kind of just advertising. And it, the idea was that you would make a piece of garb for $25 or less. Turn it in, you get free swag. We split them into different categories based off of a few different possible things of who they were competing against. Uh, the original idea was uh, in the realms, but it ended up changing a little bit just based off of what got turned in. So we had the Stygia division, which is just everyone from Stygia, because multiple Stygians applied. The Nomad division, which was just anyone who applied who only like one person from their realm entered. And then the full kit division, which are the people I did not put it in the instructions very well that you were only supposed to do one piece of garb. So like three or four people sent me an entire fully done kit. Um, and I couldn't judge those. I, we, we couldn't. I didn't actually do any of the judging. You you did most of the judging. A third of it anyways. Well, you did a third of the judging. Hey, that's more than I did. Um it wouldn't have been fair to be like, all right, this person made a hood and this person made an entire four-piece suit. Which is just impressive, you know, for uh, for, oh for that God, much money so making. Cool. Yeah. Well, and I didn't want to tell them also, like, okay, like, there was a misunderstanding of the rules. Just pick one piece of that entire ensemble you made. That's unfair, too. So we just had the full kits division. So out of Stygia... We had uh, Squire Yui win, which is part of the reason why I wasn't one of the judge because both of or two of three out of three of my squires entered into this contest, and I'm like, I can't. Clearly, I cannot be allowed to judge that. Like, that is even if I would judge fairly, that is uh, looks bad. So, congratulations to Yui. They made a beautiful hood. We will put all of this up on our social media so you can see it. Indeed. Uh, Leda from, I do not have this up in front of me, I think she's Kamagawa, and if I am wrong on that, I will fix that next episode, made a gorgeous piece, uh, and won our Nomad division, and Squire Unicorn out of Andor, I think, I should have had these in front of me before I started <laughs> doing this part. I wrote down their names and their division, and went, oh god, the realms! Uh, one with a really impressive full kit outfit. Just knocked it out of the park. Everyone who entered knocked it out of the park. Like, all of these were super cool. And I loved the variety that people got from this. I And I was brought in as, like, the X-Factor judge because I'm not a, a, a seamster myself. I, again, I've, I've sewed before um, to make sure that I knew how to do it and could instruct others, but I'm not not the greatest, and my work uh, in that regard does not look amazing. And so uh, it was just kind of strange, because, of course, the other two judges are, are fairly adept at making their, their own garb and, and, and sometimes garb for other people. And so I was sitting there being like, you know, I, I feel like the one guy on the panel that it's like, you know, having the colorblind person come in as an, as an art critic. And being like, you know, there's only so much that I'm going to see, but I, I guess, <laughs> you know, it... it uh... I purposely picked three judges at three different levels of uh, 
skill when it comes to their own crafting. Because I picked, I mean, it was you, it was Sir Tethian, and it was Master Anish. Anish, not, she runs her own business on top of making her own stuff. Tethian makes her own, makes his own stuff all the time. And then you, you have a good, like, sense of style, good sense of taste. You are not a heavy duty crafter. Right. And so I wanted those three different levels of, just as an experiment for myself for judging, the three different levels of people coming in and deciding what they thought was best and seeing where they agreed and stuff. And actually, most of you picked the same people. Well, I'm glad that as a, a fashionista, I was able to, uh, to <laughs> exhibit the same level of taste as people who actually know what they're doing. So <laughs> that works out. Um, but yeah, it was it was excellent. It was really cool to see all the different pieces that you guys submitted. You know, it just it, it's just incredible the uh, the level of creativity that y'all have, especially with uh, that low that low price tag. Again, you'd expect to see some really cool stuff if you bumped up that price tag to fifty or a hundred bucks. But at at just um, at that low level and and being able to make such cool looking stuff, I, my my hat is really off to you. Not literally at the moment because my headphones are over my hat and I can't physically take it off. But uh, no, it would make it very difficult to do this. But figuratively, my my hat is off to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, ch- check that out. We're, we we have those. Uh, um, are we going to put the winners? Like put the winners up on the on yep, the. We will put the winners up on the on Facebook and probably Instagram as well. Uh, they'll be getting a tooled leather belt flag from me, and some swag from the Art of War Gaming and of General Nerdery. Outstanding, outstanding. Yeah. So again, congratulations to you guys, uh, to everybody who participated in the Thrifty but Nifty Challenge. And uh, thank you for, for letting us see your work. Um, it, it, was a, it was a lot of fun for us and, and hopefully it was good fun for y'all and, and hopefully not the last time we'll do it. Because yeah, this was, this was a, a, a good time. But uh, I don't know. I, I think that's all I got for the intro thumbs. What do you, anything else you got? I think it's time to dive in, just dive headlong into Vegetius. All right. Well, so today we're talking noobs, and the first uh, subject on that topic is a selection of qualities. There is a quote from a historian named Pierre Briant, uh, and I actually learned it in a different podcast so if any of this sounds familiar it just largely means you listen to hardcore history but the quote is you have to believe ancient history even when it's not true <laughs> and i love this quote because it talks about as we mentioned before there are such huge parts of this era of history that we know nothing about or we only have like romanticized versions about. And one of the things I found interesting reading Vegetius here was he would talk about how nice we have it now, but the early Republic didn't have these pleasures or early bits of life or this like made in the shade as we have it now, uh, which was interesting to me because, you know, we still talk about that now, but we're talk we talk about that in like about Vegetius's era. Right. I mean, it's, it's very similar to, uh, there's a, there's a quote by Socrates and I, I, I didn't actually prepare it for this time. So I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly, but he says, you know, the children of today are, are disobedient of their elders. They don't respect the gods and they prefer idleness to working, uh, with their hands. 
And I was like, man, Socrates wrote this 3,000 years ago, and I'm pretty sure I heard an old guy say that exact same thing uh, just the other day down the street. So, you know, people have been saying this. I have directly heard my father-in-law saying that. Yeah, it it is still going. And that is not overly, you know, my quote there, uh, it's not overly important for this other, like this chapter, other than the fact that from the very beginning, we are seeing a lot of the romanticism of Vegetius talking about the age, which, as we've discussed, he's doing for multiple reasons. One, just because he's excitable, and the other, because he's trying to make a point. But it is something to keep in mind while you are reading this. And and like we had discussed last episode when we were talking about kind of the context of this book, it is very likely that this book was written as a, as a kind of political propaganda piece, and it, it's fairly obvious that it was not written by a historian or by a soldier. And so this, this romanticization, I mean, we get this in America on both sides of the Civil War, even to this day. You talk, like, there's people who, who very much romanticize the Civil War and don't necessarily look at how truly awful it was and how truly awful a lot of the, the conditions were, you know, the fact that, you know, more people died from, from diseases than they did from battlefield injuries and, and, and stuff like that, that would have made it not a very romantic time to be alive. And, and, you know, Vegetius does the same thing here. And so it's, it's a very common thing. And especially when you're dealing with any politicized version of history, romanticizing is fairly common. It's a fairly common thing to do if, if you've got people who are not necessarily scholastically trained in the subject, which Vegetius falls into that, into that category. And so some of the things that he talks about, uh, we, we even just leave them out because we're like, you know, that didn't necessarily apply uh, to the current day and age. Uh, but other things we're going we're gonna to be arguing with a dead guy. Uh, so we're, we're, we're back to that. Uh, when you called, I think first thing I said to you today was, I think this is the book where Thumbs argues with a dead guy as opposed to uh, Machiavelli where Malark argued with him all the time. Well, we didn't do it much for Frederick. You know, we, we both by and large agreed with Frederick's assessment. You know, he was a pretty bright guy who was a, a firsthand commander and his advice was, was pretty darn straightforward and pretty darn good. So we didn't have occasion to pick a fight with Frederick, but uh, much <laughs> like with Machiavelli, we've got another amateur on our hands here. So we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be picking some fights. <laughs> Seems like an every other book kind of thing so far. Yeah, I, yeah I'd, uh, well, I imagine we might be picking some fights with some of the assessment in the next book. But uh... <laughs> okay, yes, that's different, very different book. But that's next book. This is this book. So on the on the subject of what we're talking about here, the selection of qualities. Uh, this is going to be applied in two different ways. We've talked about the idea of of good qualities to look for in new recruits for your realm or for your unit in the past. Now again, an addendum for you 40k players. Uh, so if you play on a team, uh, a lot of this stuff is absolutely going to apply to you. But uh, considering that a good portion of what we're going to be talking about involves like physical training. Still a good episode. Don't get us wrong, but uh, it's not going to be a a whole lot of 40k specific. So just, just to get that out there. But again, when we're talking about this in terms of like noobs, I want to, I want to stress that we're going to be covering this in two different ways. One is the way that we've done it before in talking about new people that you're going to recruit to your realm or to your unit. But also we want to talk about these qualities as things to cultivate in yourself. It doesn't matter how long you've been around. If you've been doing this for five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, it doesn't matter. Like there's still certain qualities that, that we need to cultivate in ourselves at every level of development to ensure that we continue to improve. So with that in mind, I've got a quote for you. I think this is actually one of the first lines in the, in the text itself. And Vegetius says, victory in war 
does not entirely depend upon numbers or courage. Only that skill and discipline ensure it. You interrupted my quote, Thumbs. Gosh. I interrupted oh, I got to start up. <laughs> no, they heard it. Um, but yeah, that, that's the idea is, is that it's like, because we've talked about before that, of course, numbers do count for something on the field. And of course, you know, bravery, courage, the willingness to come to battle, that absolutely counts for something. But skill and discipline are the things that ensure victory. And, and that's an idea that, like, again, Frederick read this book. So if some of these, uh, some of these maxims sound very similar to what Frederick said, that's because like Frederick, this was one of those books that, you know, Frederick absolutely would have read as well. So it's it kind of a direct tie over. And Machiavelli. And Machiavelli. This was, you know, again, after the Roman period, this was one of the books to be read on this subject. But the things we want to stress are these ideas of continual training, exact observance of discipline, and unwavering cultivation of the arts of war. So what does that mean for us in, in, in this, like as war gamers, again, um, and if you're a soldier, this, this applies to you even more of a literal sense. But if, if you're a war gamer, what this means to you, so the continual training, you know, if, if we're in Belagarth, you know, this means picking up your sword at least once every couple of weeks and trying to do some, some forms, do some shadow boxing, uh, find a sparring partner, go find a, a, a post to hit someplace, something like that. You got, you got to keep your skills up. You got to keep your training up. It also means, you know, working your body, having some sort of workout regimen that keeps you fit, uh, feet, keeps your feet. And that, uh, that also helps you improve, gives you better endurance, better stamina, better strength and better uh, speed when you're doing what you need to do. Uh, from a Warhammer 40k perspective, this means keeping up on all the current rule changes. Like right now, we're in we're in a new edition. Ninth edition is out right now, and Games Workshop is putting out little updates every few weeks or so. And and each one of these little updates, uh, it, it pays to to be among the first to know it and the first to integrate it into your headspace. Because the quicker these things become natural to you, uh, the quicker that that it just stays natural. And then, of course, practicing with your armies, making sure that you're up to date on your rules, making sure that your meta is good. You know, these are all things of your, your continual training. And one of the things we want to stress, again, kind of this idea with the noobs, right, thinking of yourself as a noob all the time, is that your training is never finished. You've never reached the end of the road. You've never, you've never won the game. Like, that's, that's one of the, the really important things to kind of stress here, is that you're, this is a, a journey. Anything like an idea of continual training thumbs. You got anything to add on that? There will always be someone who has thrown a shot you've never seen before. There will always be the like, I never even considered that. Ranging from new, weird, goofy weapon styles. You're like, oh, never. Oh, my God, they made it work to uh, really the, the phrase young at heart is a truism, but it is kind of the goal in a lot of ways. You always want to to have that excitement of a new person. I, you're talking about the training level and the, always the new platform to reach, not just plateauing, but there is also the maintaining that joyful level to it. That we are here because we want to be here. If we don't want to be here, go do something else. Play 40k. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you know, don't want to do 40k, go do Belagarth. Please come play Belagarth. I would love that. Um, and this isn't just a field thing. On or off the field, there is always some new level to reach. There is, oh man, I got really good at this sewing project? Okay, I'm going to try this. The, the insane things that I watch bell crafters do, because it's the next level, like, oh, 
I made the thread that I used to uh, embroider this in fabric. Like, that's crazy. And I know people who have done that. But you also get exactly what you want when you're doing that. So every, this is also like Thumbs is saying, it's not just getting the next level, but it's also refinement. It's refinement of the arts that you already have. It's refinement of the skills that you already practice and making them even better. Uh, recognizing that there is no such thing as perfect, only the pursuit of perfection. Well, and reaching those levels will help you get more joy because then it's exciting. It keeps it from being boring. And then having that joy, having that sense of fun and adventure, and I'm going to try new things, will help you reach those new levels. So if you can keep up both of these things, it's... Um, I almost said self-defeating, but it's the exact opposite of that. It's self-enabling. It, like, grows upon itself. And, and what kind of feeds into this is this exact observance of discipline. And, and what this means, more than, more than waking up at the same time every day to, you know, salute in a particular direction or, or to, to, you know, fall in or something like that. Like, that's not necessarily what they're talking about here when it comes to wargaming. For us, it's a matter of knowing what works and, and making sure that you do that every single time. So like for me, I've got a pre-stretch workout that works. It works every time. It helps get me nice and limber. It helps uh, make sure that I don't injure myself when I'm fighting. So I, I know that I need to do that pre-stretch workout or, or that pre-stretch every single time. That's an exact observance uh, of discipline is making sure that I do that because I know that it keeps me from injuring myself. Same thing with my post-stretch. I know that that post-stretch keeps me from tightening up, keeps me from getting the aches and pains and, uh, and, and like other issues that can come, um, after you've worked out. And so for me, this exact observance of di discipline is knowing that, you know, it doesn't matter how much of a rush I am to get into my workout or to get into fighting, I need to do that pre-stretch. And it doesn't matter how tired I am after I've gotten done with my workout or my fighting because I need to do that post-stretch. And you will feel it the next day if you don't. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm in my 30s. You fight, fighters in your 40s, you know it even more than me. <laughs> But, uh, but this is, but I know this, this is, this is, these are habits that I know work. And these are habits that I, if I don't implement them, I'm not going to do as well. And so this exact observance of discipline, again, is, is recognizing those things which, which serve you and which, which you need to do more often. Yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward on that. And then the unwavering cultivation of the arts of war. This is the idea of continuing to, to look for other ways to, educate yourself. So kind of like what we're doing with this show in a lot of ways. You know, we're, we're, we're reading old books. We're looking for ways to apply these books to what we're doing in the current era. You know, we're, we're researching battles. We're using history to enrich our current pursuit of, of war, like wargaming. Now, this is what we're doing here. You know, we, we, I, I'm constantly out there looking for new workouts or new Pell drills or something like that in order to, to make myself just that much quicker or to make my, my technique just that much better. So, so this cultivation is constantly looking at yourself and going, where can I improve? From what sources can I learn new information that's going to help me along? Who can I turn to to be my next in instructor? Because, you know, they, I, I'm, I'm a war master at this point, but I'm still not done. I'm still a student. I'm still a student of every person that I interact with that even knows an iota more information than I do. My, my work is never done. I have to constantly be seeking new information. The second that I sit still and go, nope. This is the pinnacle. 
I've reached it. I'm the best I can be. There's no other way for me to improve than I've lost. That's when I've lost. I've, I've said already on this show that you'll never win the game, but there's one way to lose the game, and it's to stop moving. It's kind of like swimming. At that point, you might as well just retire. Right. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, if you're in the water, which we all are, you know, you, you got to keep moving. Even if you're just treading water, keeping yourself up, maintaining your skills, you still got to at least do that. Because if you, if you put your arms to your sides and say, I'm done, well, then you sink. So, so it doesn't like, if you want to remain competitive, if you like, again, and, and like Thumb says, there's nothing wrong with retiring. I I'm intending, you know, when I get my late fifties, early sixties or something like that. And, you know, even the thought of camping outside has me in fits at that point, I will probably hang up my swords and just straight up retire. But until the day that I retire, I intend on pushing myself. I intend on, on always trying to find that next level on always trying to find that next that next little piece of information that'll give me that next edge. I have to say, I love that you're like, I'll definitely retire someday, is literally double the age you are now. Yep. I'm not done. <laughs> Straight up, I'm not done. There's a reason that I've been taking the, uh, the, the, the COVID advice uh, so seriously is because I'm not done. I'm not ready to leave yet. It's not that I'm afraid of death. It's just that I'm not done living. No, I am 100% in the same boat. I just, uh, like, I, I hear a lot of people be like, oh, retiring age for Belgarth is like, I don't know, 40, 45, 50. And I'm just like, all right, when I need a cane to walk, that's when I'm done. Right. When I, when I have to, when I'm on my, like, third hip replacement, I might think about it at that point. Because, yeah, I, I love this. I can't, I can't picture my life without uh, without something like this in it. So these three things, these three things we were just talking about, this continual training, the exact observance of discipline, and the unwavering cultivation of the arts of war, these are the ways that you're going to maintain your edge, no matter where you're at, whether you're a fresh noob, like hot off the press, or whether you're a grizzled veteran who's quote-unquote seen it all. If you look to these three things as kind of your, your, your guide, your maxim, uh, you'll never plateau. Or if you do plateau, you won't stay there long. And that's kind of the idea. So we're going to move now into this idea of the selection of recruits. And bear in mind, again, that a lot of these qualities are ones that we think that you should be able to cultivate in yourself all throughout your fighting career. This, this shouldn't be something that is uh, reserved for people five years and younger or one year and younger. You know, like it's, it's not like we should, we should uh, lose our, our will to improve ourselves after a one year mark. Like that's ridiculous. If that was the case, I never would have improved because I didn't get good until year six. Oh, I was not good for a long time. So what are these qualities that Vegetius recommends? We're going to kind of go over them and we're going we're gonna to pick some fights with the dead guy for certain. There's definitely some of these qualities that we agree with. And there's some of these qualities that uh, can be interpreted a little bit differently within a modern context. So if you're following along with us, uh, that is the, the kind of format for what we're doing here. So the first one is a warlike quality and which we have also redefined as the fighting spirit because in the book this warlike quality is is very bellicose this is the kind of person you expect to be picking fights at a bar you know this is the, like they're they're a little high speed a little high strung and and within our community again the fact that we have to stress is that people don't actually die when you're war gaming they get back up at some point and you have to get together at the end of the night and you know share feast and 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 campfires together yeah not have them hate you Right. And so, and so while 
while you want somebody who is really mo like you want motivation, motivation is good. Somebody who is super belladonic or super hostile is actually not going to do as well on the field. Remember that anger compromises you. If you remember back to our Sith episode and we were talking about how an excessive application of emotion clouds one's senses and can reduce your ability to, to react uh, properly, uh, it's, it's very much the same here. If you've got somebody who is too aggressive, they're not going to be a good addition to the team. They're going to they're gonna break ranks. They're going to do silly things. They're going to make you look like fools. I mean, I, anytime I get too angry, I make more mistakes. So that's going to happen. Like... And the more mistakes you get, make, the angrier you get. It is self-defeating. And so instead of warlike, we were thinking about this as being the fighting spirit, which is that which is that ability to pick yourself up after you fall down, which is the ability to, after you lose, you lose a match, you're not sitting there blaming the other person. You're not even blaming yourself. You're sitting there and you're thinking, how can I do it better next time? How can I improve my training? How can I improve my technique so that I win next time? It's not a matter of blaming the circumstances or, or being mad at reality for being what it is. It's a matter of recognizing like, okay, this is what's wrong and this is what I can do to change it. That's also a part of the fighting spirit uh, is, is a determination not to be defeated. You know, of course, the ability, like, I, you know, I go out there and I mean, I'm, I'm six foot three. I'm not a small person when it comes to height wise, but I am a very slight person. Last time I weighed in, I was at 156 pounds. So I'm not a very heavy person. And so even though I'm tall, I still am constantly surrounded by people who are much larger than me. Now, again, people look at me and they're like, oh, he's so big. And I'm like, oh, you exhale wrong and I'm going to blow away. <laughs> but I look at somebody who's built like thick with two C's and I'm like, oh God, they're going to break me. <laughs> so like, you know, uh, and, and so it does take it. Like I understand and I can't even imagine like, uh, and this is just me being, being smaller in one way. Like if I was short and, and very thin, like I, I see people constantly who are much smaller than me, who are out on this field against people who are very large. That takes a fighting spirit, the willingness to go out there and say, you know what? I'm surrounded by giants and I am willing to throw my hat in. I'm, I'm willing to, to put my, I, I, I want to compete in this, you know, it does take it. Like we are, we are going out there with the willingness to get ourselves hurt. That's a fighting spirit right there. If you were going to go out onto the field with someone like Sir Diomedes, who is a little taller than me. I mean, my knight, he's a little taller than me, has probably a hundred pounds on me and it's mostly muscle who works as a bouncer. You got to have that fighting spirit. You do. You do because uh, it's easy to get intimidated. It is easy to, to psych yourself out by saying, oh, this person is bigger than me or they're more muscular than me or they're more fit than me or they're blah, 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 blah. The fighting spirit says, I don't care. So when, I, when we think about the fighting spirit in this way, think about a chihuahua. Does anybody tell a chihuahua, you're too small? No. The chihuahua goes up and barks at the Doberman regardless. Is the chihuahua wise for this? Perhaps not. But the Chihuahua has that fighting spirit that we're talking about. Uh, and perhaps if the Chihuahua had a sword and a shield, the Chihuahua would stand more of a chance. But yeah, so this, so this fighting spirit applies in that way too. And, and this is one that we exercise every day right now. It's 2020. And it doesn't matter what country in the, in the, on the planet you live in, it seems like 2020 is just one of those absolutely crazy years. So if you're still getting out of bed in the morning, if you're still managing to, to go about your daily routine with any semblance of normalcy, if you're still able to go to work, take care of your family, reach out and touch base with people, heck, if you're able to just feed yourself throughout the day, 
you're exercising a fighting spirit at the moment. Yeah, you you have that spirit, and we salute you. And so, yeah, it's it's, but it needs to be cultivated like anything else, you know. And there's there's different things that we do to to improve this fighting spirit. One of those things is obviously getting out there on the field and fighting everybody you can. You know, it doesn't it, like it helps, of course, to fight people who are at your own level. It feels good to fight people who you're better than. What helps even more is to help fight people who you know are better than you. It takes fighting spirit to put yourself in that situation. But let me tell you, if you make a habit of fighting people who are better than you, you will improve faster. My students who learn this lesson accelerate exponentially ahead of their classmates. Because there are, I've always, I always have some students who come in and they have no interest in getting hit by an adult. <laughs> you know, they, they, they come out there and they, they basically run away from you and they go after, you know, the, the kids that they know are either slower than they are or are less experienced and they have no interest in fighting people who are better than them. And then I always have at least a handful of kids that they will not leave me alone. Every time I'm on the field, they are thick as flies around me. And I just, I, and, and for the first, you know, six, seven months that we're fighting, I'm just killing them wholesale. And then, whoop. Oh, Suddenly they'll start blocking my shots. So I got to th start throwing different shots. And then they start blocking those shots. And then, then they start throwing shots that land on me. And then at that point, where are they compared to their classmates? It's pretty sweet. It's pretty sweet at that point. We'll also see it with the gladiator kids that come to regular Stygia practice. Oh my gosh, they get so much better so much faster. Because again, like they're just fighting one of me when I'm teaching at Gladiators. When they come to studio practice, they're fighting a whole realm of experienced fighters. They get so good, so fast. It's wonderful. And even, you know, even if you don't have a high school program like you run that we're lucky enough to have here in Missoula, there is uh, fighting at your realm versus going to a real event. Right, right. And I, and I was stubborn at first. I resisted going to an event for the longest time because I was convinced that I could learn everything I needed to know at Stygia. Then I went to my first event and I realized how dumb I was. I didn't go to an event for the first five or six years that I fought. I hit events. This is the f going to be the first year that I haven't hit an event. Oh God, in a decade? Yeah. Yeah, they're like thereabouts for me too. This is the longest I've gone without going to an event since I was... Yeah, I would have been 17, 17 God, years old, chaos. so 15. Chaos 14, yeah, I think, for me. Now, now to be fair, before you start judging Thumbs and I too harshly, uh, remember that when we started playing, we were teenagers, and to go to an event, um, we needed you needed to have a chaperone, somebody who was willing to take away from their event and, and watch after you. And considering our parents were not very into our nerds sticking uh, and we couldn't find an adult who was like, yes, I want to make this child my responsibility. Um, we didn't go to events for a while. <laughs> well, and also if I had gone to my dad and went, hey, can the weird nerds in the park take me to California for a weekend? Like, yeah. I, just, I don't think that would have flown. <laughs> not so much. No, I, yeah, I didn't go to my first event until I was 18. It was the summer after I turned 18 and I could, I, you know, I could legally go and represent myself there because before that, you know, everybody was like, oh, you're a, you're a younger person and, you know, we don't want to go to, go to jail necessarily or whatever, just be, you know, because you decided to go off and be an idiot or, yeah, <laughs> no, not to say that all young people are idiot. I've absolutely met a few uh, people at events who were there as uh, as wards, basically, of of older members of their realm, and they were they were awesome. I think Dundee 
uh, started off that way, if I recall. Um, Dundee started that way. I've met several people that have done it. Sethra started that way. People yeah, look yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, That's true. And more power to people willing to do that. I'm just not one of them. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't. My 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 mother had a very tight hold over my free time when I was growing up. So so again, uh, that was part of the reason why we didn't start as young as we could. But if you can, you know, if you if you're a younger person, if you've got parents who are who are really into this, they're reenactors or they're you know they're they're into into D and D or something, and you can convince them to go to a tournament or a, an event, absolutely do so. Same thing in Warhammer 40k. I'm not sure exactly how they do the rules there, but I'm assuming that they don't want 15-year-olds staying in the hotel by themselves. No, it's usually frowned upon. I'm sure that the younger you can get started there is is better as well. So again, this is the fighting spirit and all the different ways that we can cultivate it and, and the ways that we take on the challenges in our lives. Again, you're, you will be defeated. You will fall down. You will have hard days. Those are just facts of a life. Lot. But it's... It's whether or not you pick yourself up afterwards uh, that determines whether or not you have this spirit. I saw this meme recently that was saying, uh, oh, I'm an artist. They're like, oh, are you good enough to call yourself that? And I'm like, it's not about being good. It's about being too dumb to stop. And that yeah. applies here <laughs> as well. I think I saw a sword fight reading version of it too, but that's... No, it's true though. It's true though. You just got to keep at it. And so this is obviously something that we look for in new recruits. Do they have the fighting spirit? Do they have the ability to get back up? Do they, do they, you know, do they want to be there? We have to cultivate this in ourselves too. So the next point that Vegetius makes is on the subject of where you're getting your levies from. Um, and so he favors rural over urban. And the justifications that he gives for this are actually pretty good. And, and in a lot of ways, somebody who comes to you from a rural setting is going to have a lot of advantages over somebody who comes from an urban setting in several ways. So uh, the reasons that he gives in the book are that people who come from a rural area are more used to exposure, like exposure to the, to the elements, to weather. Um, they are less accustomed to amenities, to to uh, what, what the examples he gives are things like soft beds and running water. Straight up, he says rural people don't bathe. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's that's obviously not something that's that's true in our, our current day and age. But we'll go over that here in a second. Uh, what, what was something else? What was another quality that he f favors from rural over urban? Um, uh, the food. They're not going to complain about the food um, in a lot of ways because they grew up on on harsher stuff than they're going to get in the army. You know, I, I, while Thumbs is looking up this section, I can absolutely attest to this. When I went to basic training, um, just about everybody I knew complained about the food. But of course, I'd grown up as a part of a hunting family in Montana. And so while I absolutely missed venison, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of elements to the food that I was like, yeah, it tastes a lot like the preservatives that we had at home. So cool, whatever. Uh, they are simple, content with little, inured to all kinds of fatigue, and prepared in some measure for a military life by their continual employment in their country work, in handling the spade, digging trenches, and carrying burdens. So a lot of the things that he attributes here um, to being rural would, would mean that we don't have rural people, at least not in the same sense that he did at this time. At least not very much. Like, I mean, I grew up in Thompson Falls for the first six years of my life. And I mean, I spent a lot of time outside hiking and, and fishing and, and doing all that sort of thing because my family was outdoorsy in that way. And I know that's not uncommon for people in Montana. But that being said, I also have always had a bed. 
I've, I've always, even though in Thompson Falls, we didn't have much water. Like we had, we could only take like minute long showers. Uh, we still had water and could still bathe regularly and wash our dishes and all that sort of thing. We still had four walls and, um, a heater system to keep us safe from the elements. And so even, even people who come from a quote unquote rural setting would qualify as urban from Vegetius's standpoint. There's one obvious exception in, in my memory that stands out. Um, a former student of ours named Angus, um, if you're listening, Angus, hello. Uh, he's, he still lives here in town. He's also a 40K player. But when he first started fighting, he had a lot of natural advantages because he came from basically a Vegetius style rural setting. Uh, he, he was, his father was a pig farmer. And so he'd grow, grown up uh, living the hard life in that way. Not a whole lot of amenities, not a whole lot of electronics to speak of when he was growing up. And so he was just, he, he wasn't a big boy. Like when you think of like a, a farmer from Montana, you think about muscles on their muscles and Angus didn't look that way. He looked like he had, had muscle that was pulled tight over his bones, but it was exceptionally strong and had high endurance. And the, the example I want to give is his very first time out doing the great hunt hike with us. Now, I've, I think I've talked about this before. The Great Hunt uh, in years past has hiked to the top of a nearby mountain before our fighter practice in order to get in extra cardio before we go to fight. And Angus had, was joining us. It was his very first time. And he said to me, uh, he asked, so what are the rules? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, so what, what do you mean? Like, how do we get to the top? Is there a specific path we have to take? Or can I just, can I go up whatever way? And I said, no, just, you just have to get to the top of the mountain, my man. And so we said, go. And he just went straight up, just straight up. Like the trail goes back and forth. It has a lot of switchbacks. And he just went straight up the mountain. And I remember turning to somebody nearby and saying, I give him about five minutes before he burns out. And we're going to catch up to him in about half an hour. Uh, he'll be up there panting and wheezing. Nope. Nope. That didn't happen. He just kept going. I, he just kept the same pace and just chugged up that mountain and just disappeared over the ridgeline. And by the time we all reached the pinnacle of the mountain, he was well-rested, in repose, just kind of hanging out in the flowers. You know, <laughs> he could have been napping. You know, it was it was nuts. And, Classic but, Angus move right there. But that's that's what we're talking about, just this natural physical affinity and, and this inability to tire. Like, I don't, I don't know if he still has it because he's become a you know, a city folk now by all, by all accounts, but you know, he grew by up Montana in a, standards. yeah, by, 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 Mon, by, by Montana standards, speaking of sliding standards, but this is what they're talking about. This is why rural folks would be preferred over urban. Now, again, none of us, with the exception of our Anguses qualify to call ourselves rural, not in the same way. And so this kind of brings us into our next point, which is training for where you want to be. Because Vegetius talks about how, you know, you can take city folk, they're just going to re require a lot more training. And so just assume that all of us, anybody who's listening to this at this point, you're city folk. And, and so we have to try a little bit harder. We have to understand that our lives aren't necessarily as hard as they would need to be to get us to the point where we want to be. So that means you have to do a bit, little bit extra, get a gym membership, get a home gym, you know, start going on hikes. One thing this story, this always makes me think of, and this is uh, kind of an extreme example, but went to Battle for the Ring. And if you've been to Battle for the Ring, it is a very nice site, but it is, uh, you know, cut grass. It is uh, paved. There is electricity. There is everything. And I get there and this uh, 
some California, I don't even remember who it is, but a California fighter was like, oh, it's so good to get out of town and into the wilderness. And I'm like, there's, there's a guy playing PlayStation 30 feet from us. There's cows everywhere. I can see the Walmart from here. This is not outdoors. So in that way, you know, I was kind of better prepared for certain stuff when it came to camping. But I bet he could have beat my hide up and down the field at the time. Um, And that is a very good point. I've often heard city folk complain about the quote unquote substandard issues that they experience while camping because they just they haven't done it that much. You know, you and I grew up in Montana. We grew up camping with way less amenities than we have when we go like we I didn't have half the stuff that we have when we go to events. And so for me, an event is an upgrade. I personally barely consider, and that makes it sound elitist, and I don't mean it that way, but I barely consider uh, Bellegarth event and camping because it's so cushy to me. But for other people, people who are great Bellegram, it is just really roughing it, and it is their least favorite part. But this can make things really hard. You know, if this is, if you find yourself in this, in this position where when you go camping, you find yourself immediately uncomfortable, this is going to put you in a, a disadvantage when you go to an event, because you're just not going to be at ease. You know, your, your mind is going to be dwelling on the negative of feeling dirty or feeling like, you know, there's, there's bugs or, or whatever the case may be. And your, and your, your headspace isn't going to be focused on, on being in the moment, on being on the field, actively engaged with your opponent. And so if, if you find yourself in this in this particular place, that's pretty easy. Just make a habit of going camping, just just camping more regularly and get yourself accustomed to, to truly roughing it. I mean, like Thumbs and I did MCC. And so for us, when we're talking about truly roughing it, we're talking about like, if you can't pack it in 10 or 12 miles, it doesn't come. Yeah, camping 10 miles from the nearest road, which is two hours from the nearest highway, which is who knows how many hours from the nearest town. So uh, yeah, you get you get used to to dealing with scarcity. We're dealing with scarcity and and to a normal th- things that are normal, quote unquote normal, become luxuries. Like a shower. Oh my gosh, come back from a nine day hitch and that first shower you take. <laughs> oh mama, it is decadent, my man. That's the one. That's the one. Or uh, or just or just eating out. Like I would come back and usually wreck my stomach going to a fast food restaurant because we'd been eating trail food. And while trail food's very nutritious, it's not very diverse most of the time. And so like I would come back in and just have this need for a hamburger that would then wreck my stomach because I hadn't had meat for nine days. I'd been living entirely off of quinoa. During my first MCC season, Turk and I were both out there and we would get back. We were still living together at the same apartment. And we lived like half a block from a Papa Murphy's. Dangerous. And we would just get the biggest, most decadent, like double sized pizza with like every kind of meat. And I felt like garbage the next day, but it was the most satisfying pizza I ever had in my life every single time. But in these same regards, like uh, uh, you can also lower your threshold for for discomfort by doing something similar. If you're at a point in your life where you could do do a stint in the American Conservation Corps, um, which is what the the Montana Conservation Corps is a part of, then that might be something to consider. It, I, it every every single bellegram I've known who's tried it, it has absolutely helped out. With everything, whether it comes to preparedness while camping, comfort while camping, or just physical fitness itself, it's it's a, a wonderful thing. 
And even if it's not wilderness, like I know there's there's a lot of the conservation corps around the country just do things like wetlands cleanup or or highway stuff or anything like that or or, or just building uh, community centers or things like that. But but it's all these things are things that engage your body, get you out of your comfort zone, and doing something else. So th- and these help you train for where you want to be because where you want to be is at ease on the field and off of the field. You know, you want to feel like you belong there. So whether that that's feeling like you're one with nature or feeling like you're, you've got the skill level to compete with your, with other, everybody else, like that's where you want to be again. I'm, I'm, and I'm sure everybody wants to be the best, but I try not to compare myself to other people. I try to compare myself to where I was yesterday. When I stopped thinking about it as being the best and just being better, I became way better as a fighter. And it helps with your headspace too. Helps with your headspace too. Like it, it, like every little setback isn't like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm behind everybody in my realm or I'm behind everybody in my unit. It's like, oh nope, this is a lesson on my personal journey, and I'm gonna cycle back and kind of relearn this again, and then I'll move forward at that point. And it just helps you keep a fresh perspective on that. And so again, when you when you're training for where you want to be, you want to train harder than you would normally. You know, so if if you want to be able to to fight for three hours straight. That means that you need to, to train to be able to go for four, you know, and, and most of us aren't going to go for that, but that's just an example of what I'm talking about. Like you want to, uh, train hard to fight easy is the idea. And a lot of this gets easier. Like if, uh, do you have anything else to add on, on this idea of no, training no, for where you want to be? A lot of this gets easier if you were able to start younger. I know not all of us were able to start in our teens, but if you're able to start your training in puberty. My gosh, the levels that you can reach are just, are just pretty incredible. That's not to say that you can't be a good fighter if you start later. My war master, Vallis, started uh, in his late 20s, early 30s. And he became one of the most talked about names on the West Coast. And he's, he's not, he's not, he doesn't have the flips or the acrobatics of a hobbit or like the extreme spins or anything of a Reuben. But he, he absolutely has a, a solid technique, solid basics, and he uses them extremely well. His aggressive shield work was... Uh, um, groundbreaking for, for this area. Some of the best. Yeah. And so, but, and and so it's not a hard rule. This is not to say that if you've started later in life that you were, you will not achieve any heights that you're never going to win a tournament or anything like that. I've known plenty of fighters who have started later in life and achieved all sorts of good things. It's just harder. It's just harder. But if you are, are listening to this and you are in your teens or your early twenties, well, we're talking about puberty, uh, Vegetius would have been talking about pu- puberty as, as anywhere between like 11 and probably 15. We're discussing puberty as existing between like 13 and 25, because biologically that's how long puberty is in humans. And so if you're starting within this time, you're going to have a quicker learning, higher threshold for where you're going to go, and you're going to be better at learning the running and the leaping and the and the jumping portions of it. Um, your knees are still fresh. Your back is still, by and large, uninjured. You're less likely to hurt yourself napping wrong. Yes. So a lot of these skills that will help you later in life, that will just become natural for you once you get into your 30s, you can start learning them in your in your teens, when if you fall, you're not going to hurt yourself. Like, I'm really glad I learned how to do rolls, like front rolls, back rolls, side rolls, while I was in my teens and in my early 20s, because if I would be trying to do that now and flopping myself against the ground, that would hurt. You know, trying to learn that in my thirties, that would hurt. I'm glad I already know how to do that in my thirties. Let me tell you. And so that, that sort of thing really helps. And, and like I've said before, just like the, the sky is the limit when you're able to start young, both thumbs and I started when we were, when we were teens and it it really 
helped us be able to to shape where we're coming at this from. And so don't don't feel downtrodden, I guess is what I'm saying. Don't feel like uh, you have to be older in order to be able to do this well. Don't feel like your your body has to have developed fully in order to be good at this because you want to start getting those those talents in while you are still an unmolded mass. You know, like I, I remember back to what my body looked like when I was 15 and I first started doing this. And, you know, I was like a unimpressive lump of clay, you know, like there wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't big, I wasn't small, I wasn't impressive or anything like that. I was just kind of skinny and fast. But apart from that, you know, there was nothing there that would have said he's going to be a fighter. But as I fought over the next 10 years, and as I was building myself up and everything, my body changed itself in order to, to support the muscles that I needed. It changed the way I did things in order to support the cardio that I needed. And so I was able to transition away from being whatever I was at 14 to kind of being at my physical peak at 25. Um, and it was because I had much like a bonsai tree, I had, I had trimmed the edges of my fitness and helped my body grow in the way that I wanted it to young athletes across the spectrum are this way. Well, and even beyond just, we talked, we were talking about developing muscle memory. It's also kind of mental stuff that you have to work with. When I am learning a new thing, even though I have a bunch of things that make it easy to learn, I am also working sometimes against 17, 18 years of previous things that I've learned. When I was 15 and learning how to do, learn how to do a new thing, it was just everything I had learned when I was 15 because I had just started. Right. Right. And so it's, it's, it's fresher. It sinks in better. It's not competing for space with a bunch of other information, a bunch of other uh, talents or a bunch of other interests. Right. So yeah, this is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, one of the other things that Vegetius mentions about why starting younger is, is a little bit better than starting older is that the older you get, the more cynical and the more protective you're going to become of yourself. So I remember like I, I got uh, best death when I was still in my, gosh, that would have been somewhere between 19 and 21 is when I would have gotten that. And that is an award that- That's usually the age best death happens. Right. And, th and the reason for that is, is I didn't have any spine injuries at that time. I didn't have a fear <laughs> of being injured. And so I was just throwing myself, just ragdolling all over the field. Like somebody would hit me and I would just go like an anime death, just fling myself- and it was, it was a, apparently a joy to watch. It was a spectacle. You know, I was applauded oh, I and everything it. like that. But, uh, you know, that's not something I could do now. You know, I even think about doing that now and I'd be like, no, that's going to hurt. I'm not going to do that. Like I've got this, this second guessing, this voice in my head, this intuition that has come with age that keeps me from doing things that my brain considers dangerous. For instance, a, another skill that I'm glad that I picked up when I was younger is parkour. Um, I'm not, now please do not ask me to do any videos. I am not a, a person that is like a, a free running pro or anything like that, but it was a skill that I picked up in my late teens, early twenties. And it was while it was at a time that I was able to suspend my fear and learn the skills that I needed to be skilled, uh, to be, to be, uh, effective at doing that sort of thing. If I was going to try to do that now, there's no way that I would jump the gaps that I used to jump and to, to learn how to do the jumps. No way. No, There's no way not. with a three-story drop. Absolutely not. Um, but then, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I was fearless, you know, I had this ability. And so this is another reason why beginning your training when you're younger can be good. And one of the reasons why, uh, people who are looking for recruits want somebody like this, because they are not 
sit they're going to sit there and second guess every decision. They're not going to sit there and argue with you. Uh, the other thing is if if they're if you've got somebody coming into your unit and they already have an established way of doing things, you know, they're they're older and then you try to give them orders or something, they're going to be far more likely to get uppity with you on the grounds that they quote unquote know better, right? Yeah, who are you to tell me what to do? New new people occasionally take is- issue with authority just because it's authority, but that's that's a young person thing. That's not a matter of of resisting you because you know they they honestly think that they know better. And so this is this is, these are some of the reasons why young people uh, can work a little bit better. Now, for those of us who are older that are still trying to preserve this this like young at heart idea that Thumbs is talking about, there is no way to turn back time and recover. Uh, lost ligaments or cartilage or or anything like that and so i'm not necessarily recommending you start like learning how to skateboard in your 40s because you know your bones are not as bendy as or it won't heal as quickly as they would have as it would have been your teens but that's also not to say that you should just turn away any older person that wants to join your unit but but make sure you kind of check them out make sure that they haven't become so jaded cynical and set in their ways that they can no longer be taught and for ourselves, make sure that we never become so jaded, cynical, or set in our ways that we can never be taught. And you'll, you'll never reach your plateau. You'll always have somewhere else to go. So now we're going to talk a little bit about some, some jobs, some jobs that like Vegetius said would and wouldn't work for, for a good, like a good soldier, why we do and don't disagree with it. Some other jobs, some modern jobs that wouldn't have existed in Vegetius's time and why those can and uh, can contribute or, or maybe take away from what we're doing here. So we're going to talk about the jobs that Vegetius doesn't want first. And so the, the four that he lists are fishermen, fowlers, confectioners, and weavers. Now, of course, we disagree on several of these, on these now. Uh, fishing, for instance, is a very different industry than it was back in Vegetius's day. You know, if you've ever watched one of these Alaskan fishing shows, you know that these guys are fit and they have to endure some fairly rough elements. And so I think if Vegetius could could uh, come forward and watch some some like crab wars or whatever it is on, on the History Channel, I think he might change his tune. Well, and even fly fishing is a pretty full intensive, like full body intensive movement. True. Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of timing. It takes coordination, no doubt. We should also get out of the way here. Again, this is one of the places where uh, the reality of what Vegetius was going for versus the wargaming of what we're talking about will not entirely translate. He's like, don't recruit people who have these jobs. If I tried to join a unit and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we don't accept anyone who does grocery store work. <laughs> oh, I would be so mad at them. Like, And that'd be goofy. That'd be goofy. And like we were saying before, just because, you know, you grew up in a city or an urban setting and you're not considered rural doesn't mean you're not going to make a good soldier. It just means you're going to have to work a little harder. If your job isn't naturally suited toward endurance, strength, or speed, then yeah, you're going to have to work a little bit harder. It's just another thing you're going to have to consider. Yeah, just another thing you're going to have to consider. Exactly. Fowlers. I don't know many professional bird hunters off the top of my head. I'm not even sure a fowler is, is technically still a a job. Kind of a hobby for people I know, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily know of anybody whose their job is to be a fowler. Uh, confectioners though, brewers, uh, bartenders, anybody like this, I think would be considered a confectioner. And in particular with bartenders or anybody who's in any sort of waiting 
or any wait staff sort of idea, the fact that you are on your feet all day, every day, that's huge. That puts you up on, on, on people who are not. I actually disagree with him, at least on that particular point, because, you know, uh, folks who are, or who are in that line of work have a lot more endurance in that way than people who aren't. If you sit behind a desk every, uh, every minute of your workday, you're going to have a lot less endurance and a lot less uh, mobility on your feet than somebody who's on them all day long. And so for me, like a bartender or a, or a, a waiter or a waitress, they actually have a lot of really good raw talent, the, 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 uh, uh, in particular, waiters and waitresses think about balancing the fact that they have to balance so much at all the time and and maintain like their focus not just on their walking but what they're doing with their hands and like and and, and taking orders and keeping all the information sorted like all these things are actually quite useful when you're dealing with the rapid uh, evolution of events on the field. On a similar level, I do a bunch of I do basically warehouse work at a grocery store. And I pick up a lot of the similar things. I, you know, I carry a few thousand pounds a day. I am always uh, uh, on my feet. It may not, you know, I'm not as sleek as I once was by any stretch of the imagination. But that movement and that continual like, okay, now it's time to do the next thing has definitely helped. I'll do a short burst and man, I am dying afterwards. But then 30 seconds later, it's time to do it again. I'm fine. Okay. And I can do it partly because I have that that training of like, okay, that was exhausting. Go do the next thing now. And the stra- even just looking at you again, like nobody else can see the video, but I'm looking over here at your arms and your shoulders, and you can see the fact that you lift all day. Like you're like you're you don't look like a bodybuilder, but you look like somebody who is fit, like somebody who who you know can lift a heavy load and then do it again and then do it again and then <laughs> do it again, which is which is what fitness is. Um, and, and on another note, I won't go too much into this, but of course, most uh, units would never turn away a confectioner in this day and age. No, Let's just put no. that out there. And the last one that he mentions is weavers. And weavers is the exact same thing. Like, I don't know a single unit that would be like, oh, you're really good at making garb. We don't want you. Like, that's, that's a skill that's extremely useful in this day and age where we often have to be everything unto ourselves. We have to be our own weavers and our own uh, confectioners and all that sort of thing. And so these things are very useful to have in an individual. You know, you can, you can see why, again, a weaver is somebody who sits down for the majority of their job. You know, it's a, it's a very uh, small motion intensive job. And so the, it itself does not necessarily set you up to be a good fighter. Uh, is it a useful skill within uh, a fighting community? Absolutely. Uh, cause you know, garb is a real thing, but, um, it does mean that your job doesn't set you up naturally in order to be able to fight other jobs that, that would kind of fall under this. You're going to have to try harder list would be like it, you know, like uh, for, and again, I want to bring up my, my war master because Vallis is a, is an IT guy. And yet he managed to become one of the most spoken names in the West. And so, um, it, it's not a matter of, of you can't do it, but he had to try harder. You know, he had to, he had to work a lot harder at it because his job was, was sitting down all day working on computers. It's real easy to get in bad shape when you're doing that too. Like I've, I've done that kind of job. You know, my, my job is doing this right now. This is, this is technically my work right now. And so I spend, you know, all day, every day taking notes and reading books and, you know, watching shows on things that I think will contribute to this. And I have to remember to get up and do my training. It's part of the reason why I'm, I'm being so obsessive about, you know, doing my bag drills and doing my walks and that sort of thing is, is to make sure that I'm getting up and doing things and not just, uh, 
because I'm not, it's not like I'm gaining weight or anything at the moment. I'm wasting away, but in the same token, I don't want to get onto that field the first time and just be completely winded after five minutes. That's, that's not going to be satisfying. And so again, if, if, if you're in one of these positions, it doesn't mean that you cannot fight. It doesn't mean the people won't accept you. Most of us, I think would find ourselves in jobs that Vegetius would not look highly upon. It just means that we have to try a little harder and that's okay. Any other jobs you can think of that Vegetius may not like, but we have no issues with? Just imagining it trying to explain to him what IT it would be, like at all. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe a, maybe, maybe a, a likening it to a scribe, I guess, of some sort. A scribe is the be closest. You're a scribe, but with magic boxes. Or an engineer. I could see an engineer, too. Um, both of which also would be uh, skills I'm sure that he wouldn't want in a soldier. But, so moving on to, to things that he does want, and these are actually still jobs that absolutely would still uh, lend themselves toward being good at what we're doing even to this day. Um, so the ones he talks about are smiths, carpenters, butchers, and huntsmen. So smiths. Um, we have very few actual blacksmiths in this day and age, but uh, under this idea would be any sort of metal workers, welders, that sort of idea. I was a welder for a stint. And I can tell you that while I was in welding school, you know, I'd go in at six in the morning and I'd be slinging hot metal all day until four o'clock. And then I'd have about 45 minutes worth of a break on my way home. And then I'd get home and I would run through a workout because, um, that was the coping mechanism I had while I was in school. So I would, and then, I'd, and then on Sunday I'd go to practice and never get tired just never get tired. And, and again, it was that combination of, of just lifting hot, heavy metal in a, in a super hot environment all day long, and then going home and working out and like training my body to continue. Even when it was tired, I was, that was one of the best years of fighting I've ever had. Uh, and I it was just partially because I was so in shape and, and I had welding to thank for that. I would not have been as ripped as I was that year if I hadn't have been, you know, carrying around a bunch of iron all day, every day. So, you know, that Smith thing absolutely works. Uh, if you can find the time, you know, the other, the other side of that is a lot of welders work, you know, a lot. <laughs> so finding a welder who has the time to come out to practice is a whole nother, is a whole nother thing. Uh, carpenters. Uh, I have several members of my unit that I can think of off the top of my head. Ogre, TG, uh, Peaton from time to time who do carpentry work. And it is part of what keeps them in such good shape. Going up and down ladders all day, um, you know, working with their hands, uh, hauling the wood. Of course, the hammering, the nailing, the drilling, the the screws, like all that stuff. It's just, it's just constant work, constant lifting, constant strain on your body. And it puts you into a very good place to, to be able to be a good fighter. Um, butchers. I mean, your wife's a butcher. What do you what do you think about the strength training uh, for butchers there, bud? Watching her move a whole pig is so impressive. Yeah. You know, watch, uh, there have been several times, because I don't do any butchery stuff, but she does. And, you know, she'd be like, oh, I got a pig today. Or, oh, we have this deer. I'm going to butcher a deer today. And I'll just, like, bring my chair down and we'll listen to an audiobook together or something. I don't know. It's cute. Um, and just watch her as she pulls apart. It is an intensive piece of work to get that done. And that's in the modern day where freezers exist. Like, look at back then. It is a whole body thing. And beyond just the amount of physical work that would have been involved, a butcher is someone that is going to be very useful for when you are f uh, foraging food. 
and same with the next one with the Huntsman, these two are not just the physical aspects, but are going to be extremely useful because the Huntsman will be like, hey, look, I killed that deer over there. And the Butcher will be like, here, let's feed the rest of us for a week. And 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 that is an excellent, like the first time that you sit down to a proper meal um, in the field, you you absolutely thank the fact that somebody has this skill, no doubt. Uh, but you were saying the the physical aspect of just like flopping the pig and trying to maneuver it and all that sort of thing. Also, the the throwing of the shots, like you're you're sitting there having to use a blade, having to do so with skill and dexterity, and you're throwing shots into meat. Who knows better how flesh resists a shot than a butcher? Because it does too. It's one of the weird. It's one of the the things that like uh, trips people out when we were like, for instance, in basic, they still have you train with a bayonet. I can't imagine a war in which I'm going to have to use a bayonet, and yet they still train you with the bayonet in basic training. But one of the things that they do when they're training you with the bayonet is the uh, dummies that you're going against are are made out of like tires. They're made out of rubber, and so when you stick the bayonet in, the rubber grabs it. And like sticks to the side of it. And so it's actually far more effort to remove your bayonet than it is to stick it in. And flesh actually has that, that, that very similar quality that it, that it kind of sucks onto whatever has kind of punctured into it or has gone into it. And so if you haven't ever done anything like that, again, with wargaming, we're not necessarily stabbing people. So this is, this is more for actual warfare, but, um, you know, I remember we had a butcher in my class and he was like the only, he was the only kid in the entire basic training that I was in who did not seem tripped up. Like even me, like I grew up um, around a hunting family. I grew up like fighting and swinging stick and all that sort of thing. And I struggled getting my bayonet out of that rubber the first couple of times. He had no problem, no problem whatsoever because, you know. He was just like, well, let's go. Yep, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to how to do the motion. And so a butcher, uh, again, is not only going to have that, that physical endurance from hauling around dead weight all day long, but they're also going to have uh, the know-how of where to strike uh, with a blade and the endurance of swinging a blade over and over and over again with precision, because you definitely don't want to be swinging a butcher's cleaver near your hand and do it sloppy. Oh no, God. That's bad. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, butchers, butchers are great. Even to this day, butchers are a great recruiting choice. Um, huntsman, like we had said, same kind of idea. You've got somebody who is used to a lot of physical labor, stalking through the woods for long periods of time, hauling out something after they've killed it. Of course, these are both, uh, jobs that get you very much, uh, comfortable with the idea of killing something else. And so they're still very good, uh, for, for developing that killing spirit, even in war gaming. You know, other jobs that are, that are, would be equally good as at like something like this would be like a garbage man. You know, they're on the, again, if, as long as you're not the driver of the garbage truck, but like the guy who works in the back, who has to jump off, pick up the garbage, haul it into the back, jump on, jump off, like, and does that all day. Like, that's amazing. Like, I, that, that, like, garbage men have got to be ripped. Same thing with firefighters. You know, the physical training that firefighters have to go through. You know, I, I, I would, I, I don't, I don't imagine we're going to be getting all the firefighters from this year's fire season, but like, gosh, that would be nice. We just have this entire crew of ripped fighters coming in. That would be really cool. When we've had it before, we've had trail workers. Trail workers are one of my favorites, even though they're really in and out during the summer of when they're available. But trail workers are uh, wilderness firefighters that would come fight with us. And they were always just so excited to be doing things and in such good shape that they could keep up even if they didn't have the skill yet. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and that physical conditioning counts for a lot. It counts for a lot. Can you think of any other 
professions off the top of your head? Nah, I mean, I'm sure I could, but really any kind of like brute physical labor one. Or anything that keeps you on your feet all day long and gives you that endurance. Doctors, nurses are going to be in this same, this same idea. Like nurses are some of the hardest working people in our country, especially right now. And, uh, and, and the nurses that I know who have come over to the field, they have no issues with endurance. Like maybe, maybe they have to work on it a little bit with their upper body because they're not, you know, they're not used to necessarily swinging stick all day. But in terms of like leg endurance, oh yeah, they can stand all day, every day. You know, they just, they, they've gotten done doing, you know, the last five years working a job where they have 18 hour shifts standing on the field for three hours is nothing, <laughs> nothing. Construction workers would also fall into this same vein. You know, they kind of the same idea of your carpenters and your smiths. Uh, you're, you're hauling around a bunch of heavy stuff all day, every day, and your, your, your body is conditioned. And again, not necessarily, not necessarily saying that if you don't fall into one of these physically intensive jobs that you're not going to make a good fighter, just means that you're going to have a little bit more work to do before you hit that same, that same kind of entry level that they're going to be coming in at. And so to, to kind of rehash on this section, the idea here for those of us who aren't noobs. So again, like for Thumbs and I, we can't go back in time and, and say to ourselves, okay, these are the things that we need to do to be the best noob that we can be, you know, in a lot of ways our noob days are behind us, but we can still be new in spirit. You know, we can still approach the, the sport and look at it from, from the idea of, of, of being new every single day, every day that you wake up and you're doing something again, you're doing it again for the first time new. And so you want to re remain fresh in spirit and retain your eagerness, retain your eagerness to be there, retain your eagerness to participate in the work. And it will never become hard. It will never become too difficult. And I guess the last idea before we, before we get off of this is the one that size does not matter. Vegetius stresses a couple of different times in this book, like we mentioned uh, in the last episode, where he said that you want somebody who's, you know, minimum, you know, 5'10", but at least six foot, you know, that, that's not important. You want him to be absolutely huge, obviously male from his perspective. Uh, that doesn't seem to matter for us. Again, like I have known fighters of every shape and size and body type and walk of life. What, what matters is their willingness to apply themselves to the art. You know, obviously, you know, if we're doing something like, like grappling and we put a, a heavyweight against a welterweight, there is going to be a advantage there, just a sheer size advantage. But in terms of fighting, a sword is a sword. And if you can move it through the air faster and with more skill than your opponent, you will win. It doesn't matter if you're larger or smaller than your opponent. One of my favorite people in the world, Vokor, hits me up every six months or so. This is, by the way, if you haven't met Vokor, he's a giant out of Durdamarian. He is just a, he's bigger, he's taller than I am and he's built like a, a fridge, you know? He's just, and he's, he's one of the EBF out there. And so, I mean, he hits like a freight train. But when I was out there sparring with him, just something about the way our styles matched up meant that I was always just kind of one step ahead of him. For one thing, I don't think he realized I was um, left-handed and I was florentining a lot in those days. And so one of my favorite things to do is just be like, look at the birdie with my, my, my right hand and then stab him in the and guts. And then, and then rinse and repeat. That was, that was, that's, that's lefty foo right there. But um, he'll still like every six months or so hit me up and be like, dude, you're such a good fighter. I'm so glad I got to fight against you. You just impressed me so much. And I'm like, Vokor, you scare the, sh the bejesus out of me. You do. <laughs> nice like, <catch>. thank you. <laughs> you scared the bejesus out of me. But, but he's sitting there praising me as being this great fighter. And it's not because, again, I'm, I'm, I was bigger than him or stronger than him. God, I'm not stronger than him. It was just I, I was timing my shots and timing everything right in order to appear faster. And that, and that gave me an edge. 
But again, size does, or, or, or Sethra. Sethra or Dyer are both people that we like to, to talk about on the show. I don't think we've discussed Sethra that much before, but she's one of our students from, from Hellgate, um, from the Gladiator program. She's an absolute beast. And right now, I mean, like if you if you follow her, she's got her own show right now. And if you follow her, she's going through this this uh, this like weight gaining, uh, inter- like she's just like weight- lifting weights and just getting ripped right now. And so she is just getting built. But like she she was powerful even before she started on this path. And it was because she realized that yes, if she fought these big dudes like a big dude, which she was not, then she was going to lose. But if she fought the way that her body needed her to fight. So again, one of the things that we talk about is like where shots get their power from. Men by and large throw their shots and they, they get their power from their core and from their upper body. Women also get their power from their core because that's important for everybody, but they get a lot more of it from their lower body, from their hips and their legs than men normally will. And so one of the issues we have as men trying to teach women how to throw strong shots is we try to teach them to throw them as a man and then they can't throw it as difficult or as hard because they don't have the same upper body strength. And so men are like, oh, women are, are weaker than men. But then you find a woman who knows how to throw a shot with her hips and with her, with her core. And, you know, she sends your spine out the back of you and you're like, oh, <laughs> no, we were just training them wrong. That's on us. Nope. <laughs> I messed that one up. That's on me. Uh... So, so again, size does not matter. And, 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 and all these other th- considerations we're throwing out there. The biggest one of all these things we've listed is the fighting spirit. That is the, the one on this list that actually matters. The rest of these things are considerations. You know, if you come from a rural area, you might have a little bit of an easier time. If you come from a trade that, that lends itself to physical hardship, you might have an easier time. If you're starting in puberty, you might have an easier time. But the most important thing, you might have all those things on your side, but if you don't have the fighting spirit, it won't get you very far. next section, we're going to talk about some of the initial training that can really benefit newer fighters. Now, one of the other themes of this show, I hope that you've caught on to is that the basics are important for everybody. So even people at an advanced level or who are veterans uh, need to go back and go over this material, even as they get further on. I, I continue to go back and revisit this material, you know, every, every time I am working out, every time I'm working towards improving myself in the sport, I guess, uh, because these things are, they apply to everybody. But in particular, if you're a newer person and you're trying to figure out where to start, if you're trying to figure out what, uh, drill, like what, what, uh, what kinds of exercises can help you specifically, uh, getting better at fighting, then, then this is kind of for you. Also, it's, it's good for veterans. Again, if you're a veteran and you're not practicing what we're about to talk about, then you should. You know, having done it five years ago and never done it again, you know, for these things to stay relevant, they have to stay fresh. You gotta, you gotta keep things flowing in you, I suppose. So the first of these things, the first of these two exercises we're going to talk about is what we're calling the military step. And this is something that Vegetius talks about as well. And what, what he's talking about specifically is the ability to like march together in ranks, so maintaining your, your like your four by four formation and you're moving. And, and when, when he was talking about this, like the drills he's talking about are like marching together, like 20 or 25 miles a day. Right. And, uh, not many of us have time. 
the time or the the energy to be able to to march 25 miles a day and nor would it be as useful for us now that's not to say that that kind of endurance wouldn't come in handy but you have to remember that the romans uh what they had to do is they had to march with their entire camp on their backs then when they got there they had to set up a new camp and then sometimes they had to go to battle either that night or that uh, or that next day and so like it was a matter of maintaining making sure they had the energy to be able to do all of that and still be useful other than the battle part i've done that before the 20 to 25 miles in a day and the carrying everything on you but that is also one of those things that you have to maintain if you're going to do it that's not something if i tried to do that today i would die like without with no prep yeah uh, same here you know these were this was something that was easy for us when we were in the mcc but of course we these are things we haven't done recently and so it's something that's faded so while again while that is useful that's not necessarily what we're going to focus on for this section while it is still important to practice marching together, that's not something we can necessarily do right now with all of the realms being shut down due to COVID. But when we are able to get everybody back together, this is one of the things that I'm planning on instituting in Stygia is the idea of doing like a group marching practice at the beginning. Um, and I used to be a, a drill sergeant, or not a drill sergeant, a drum major. <laughs> I wish I was a drill sergeant. I thought I was a drill sergeant, but I was a drum major in marching band. And so I, I'm actually pretty good at, at calling out uh, cadence and, and making sure that people are marching together and, and getting people to do that. So I'm planning on on using that to help Stygians maintain a little bit better of a line because that's what this is for. The, the practicing marching together and, and moving together is just so that everybody maintains the integrity of the line. We've talked about before how important it is not to allow gaps or breaks in your line. And the way you do that is by practice. You know, it, it doesn't just happen the day of. You don't just magically figure out how to march together. It's something that happens through practice. And I know groups like the the, the Urukai used to practice marching together. Uh, the BOF still do on occasion. And so and these are groups that are, are, are historically quite good at fighting um, like a shield wall, as a shield wall. So this is important and something that we often overlook. This is one area where I almost am going to fight with a dead guy, but not quite. Because I, I do want to note here, when he's talking about this stuff, he is talking about 10,000 soldiers doing this together. Right. Uh, we are talking about a big group is 20 to 30 soldiers, 50, maybe 100 on your side of the field, whatever. The tactics are going to be different here. So what he has as absolute law of importance of marching and lockstep, which with 10,000 soldiers is 100% true, yes, is a little more open for variety for us. That doesn't mean walking together is not important. That doesn't mean learning how to hold a line is not important. I admit my own prejudice here of I really hate line fighting, but I mean, still... He's like, no, you absolutely have to be able to walk in lockstep. I'm like, no, you don't. You have to be able to walk together. You also come from, you come from Stygia and, and, uh, line fighting has never been one of our focuses as a realm. I still think it's something we need to learn, but. This is why I definitely wanted to point out my prejudice of, I don't like line fighting. You know, you and I disagree on certain places, and we mostly agree on this one. But I am definitely not one of the, like, no, we have to walk in specific lockstep kind of people. And even on the actual field, like, I wouldn't ever expect somebody, like, the idea of an entire unit going out there and go, you left, you left, 
you left, right, left, like as they approach the enemy, like that's not going to happen. Like you're, you're not going to remain in lockstep as you approach the enemy. This is not the British, um, cotton, like the army, the redcoats, you know, uh, uh, that's not the style of warfare that we're talking about here. But just the idea of being, like having it in your mind to maintain that that distance between you and the people next to you is all is all we're talking about here. Not necessarily the exactness of like a, the the Prussian drill or something like that. It's true. We might be. I might be more talking about again the intensity of I am doing this to survive in a ten thousand man army versus this is what I do on my Sundays. Right. Right. But yeah. Yeah. And so again, the 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 focus here would be on keeping keeping the ranks together. Uh, primarily. Now there is, there uh, with that distance, there is something to be said for the endurance that comes from it, but other drills that we can run in order to get a military step, because it's not just maintaining that distance between you and the people next to you and, and maintaining that position, the integrity of the line, but it's also uh, the majority of what we're going to do in terms of leg use is uh, sprints. Like we do a lot of explosive action in terms of what we do on the field. Like it's usually, you know, you see an opportunity, an opening, you go into a, a quick flurry of action, and then it's a few more minutes of wandering around looking for an opening and then a quick flurry of action. And so honestly, sprint drills are far better at uh, cultivating the kind of, of endurance that we need, which is like what Thumbs was talking about. You may get tired after you do a sprint, but if you can bounce back quickly, that's more important than not getting tired in the first place is your ability to recover after the cardio event. It's really remarkable. I noticed this, uh, you know, I'll just like, I'll get done with a sprint and I will just, you know, hands on your knees, just that whole, oh, and feel like people think I'm going to have a heart attack. And then like the fight starts up again and I groan a little bit and then freaking going again. So it is definitely not constant. Right. Yeah, and, and it's it's like with the exception of people who just sprint the entire time, like at certain times of, of my fighting career, you know, from the time Leon is called to the time that they tell you to get back to your sides, I would have just been sprinting the entire time. I am not in that kind of shape anymore, nor do I necessarily want to be. The amount of calories I had to eat at that time to sustain myself was ridiculous. But, and so these sprint drills can be a number of different things. Like one of the, the things that I've been doing with my, kind of using it in conjunction with my bag drill is if my, my wife or my mother are out working on a project while I'm out using the bag, I'll just have them call out different shot combinations from one of the forms that I know. And I'll start like 20 feet away from the bag. And then they'll say, you know, three, five, go. And then I'll sprint to the bag. And by the time I get there, I, I should have figured out what the combo is. And then I, I do the combo on the bag real fast as I get to it and then jog back to my position and then do it again and then jog back and do it again and, and do that a couple of times. And then they switch up the combination, but it, it gets you in the habit of moving quickly at your target and then throwing your shots right when you get there. Like it's, it's, it's not a matter of I'm running at my target. I come to a stop. I throw my shots. No, like, it, like I, I do not break my sprint while I'm throwing my shots. Like, I may come to a stop while I'm throwing them, but that momentum is 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 really useful as well. So that's those are good sprint drills that you can do. If you were in uh, soccer, uh, or, or the rest of the world calls it football, or basketball or anything like that, you'll be familiar with suicide drills. Or American football. Or American football. You'll be familiar with suicide drills where you, you sprint a distance, jog back, sprint the distance, jog back, sprint the distance, jog back. And again, it's this, the idea is to be training your body to recover quickly uh, from aerobic exercise. 
Uh, and it's, it's very important for what we do. Same thing with leaping and lunging. Uh, again, the, this practice is, is much better started when you're younger and your joints are uh, the complain less, but it's important for anybody to know how to do leaps and lunges. Many is the time that I've vaulted over a red sword because they were throwing it at like my low shin and I happened to catch it like the timing right with my legs and I was able to jump over a red swing. It looks really cool, catches the red user completely off guard and is only possible if you have a decent vertical. This is one of those ones that we spend the first year or two teaching a fighter not to do things and then teach them when to do it. Jumping is 100% that skill. I'm like, don't jump, don't jump. It's so easy, and we should give that warning here. It is so easy to hurt yourself when you jump because at that point, you are not in control, really, of where your body is going. Like, you are to an extent, but, like... It makes you very predictable, too. One of the things with the jump is, like, once you've left the ground, I know exactly where you're going to be for the next few seconds because you're going to follow a very logical trajectory dictated by physics. That is a, a level of predictability that you don't, do not want in a fight. And so jumping to, like, get shots is not necessarily a good idea. But at the same time, you are super going to jump, so having that ability to do it without wrecking yourself just in real life is a good thing, let alone in something as physically active as Belagarth would be. And like I said, I don't, I try not to fall these days. Like I go out of my way to not hit the deck in a super hard way. That being said, I'm glad I know how in case I do get, like I, I take a shot, like I get stabbed in the chest or something. It knocks me off my feet. I know how to fall in such a way that I'm not going to injure myself, which is important. Uh, and it's the same thing with the, the leaping and the, and the lunging and all that. Like you're not going to use it all the time, but when you do actually need it, you're going to want to be able to do it. So building up that leg strength um, so that you have that in your toolbox is, is important. It's definitely something to consider. And this last thing in terms of the military step and, and more specifically in terms of building endurance is swimming. You know, he mentions it in the book as being like, you may not have learned how to swim. We're going to be doing a lot of river crossings. If you fall out of a boat or something like that, you're going to need to know how to swim. Uh, with what we do, uh, water hazards are not necessarily something that we encounter <laughs> very often. That being said, swimming is great cardio, great cardio and great endurance training. So if you've got a pool or a body of water nearby that you're able to frequent, um, this is a, especially right now with everything being shut down, you know, pools have chlorine in them that kills everything. So, you know, that's, it's one of the safer ways to, to work out at the moment, if you're able to, to like get your own lane or something like that. So, so swimming laps is an amazing way to stay in shape. I've wanted to get a, a swimming pass at some local pool for years and years now. I just, you know, I'm an adult. What is spare time? But, uh, <laughs> because it is anytime I've done any kind of swimming and I'm not a good swimmer, like just as a rule. But anytime I've done any real amount of swimming, man, you can just feel it. Like, the next day, it is a whole... Even the weird way of swimming I do, where I pretty much just pull myself forward with my arms and my legs just kind of, like, dangle, and it makes Turkey laugh every time. I still, like, that's a whole body workout. Yeah, and it, and it gets you... Like, when Turkey first came to us, he was he was fresh out of being a swimmer. And I think it's part of the reason that he had a, a fairly easy time adjusting to the physical demands of Belagarth is because he was a swimmer when he came to us. And so he already had great lung capacity, great endurance, great cardio. And so he just had to learn the, the body mechanics 
uh, but his, his, uh, in terms of endurance, he was already there. So, so yeah, swimming is great. And, uh, and all these things contribute to what we call the military step, which is your ability to move together as a group and, uh, and be able to continue doing so in an effective manner, even once the fatigue starts to set in. Anything else to add on the military step there, Thumbs? Not really. Really any kind of workout you can do, but really it's about hiking. Building Hiking's up. great. Biking is wonderful. Grizz spent a while doing, you know, oh, I biked 20 miles and then I'm going to this event now. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. But best fighting I've ever seen him do was when he was doing that all the time. It is a full body. Anything that you are building up full body, anything that you are uh, building up your cardio, I think, especially in our game where speed is more important than power because power comes with technique and speed. Or so I guess more power, uh, speed is more important than strength. Uh, cardio is always going to be something I am going to push more than like weightlifting. Weightlifting still important. We're actually going to get into that a little bit, but cardio, 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 cardio. Yep, yep. That's the that's the big one. So yeah, anything you can do to increase your cardio is going to make you better at your military step. This next exercise we're going to talk about is called the post exercise. And, and, and a post can go by many names. You can call it a bag, you can call it a pal, you can call it whatever you want. Basically, it is a thing that you hit. And what he recommends for this, and so the, the idea here is that you're going to be swinging at something with tr specific weapons that you've got for this training. So he recommends, and I, and I actually uh, definitely buy into this at a bare minimum, um, if you're going to be using your bucklers and swords to do, be doing your post exercises, that they be at least twice the normal weight. And so like the, the ones that I've been doing recently, I just made myself a, a new sword for this. And by made myself, I mean that I, I went and I found one of my old swords where the tip had blown out, but it still had all the foam on it. I then began just wrapping that sword in duct tape until it weighed twice the legal weight. And then that's now my practice sword. I swing that at a punching bag. And of course, I'm never going to use a sword that weighs that much on an actual field. I'll never use a buckler that weighs as much as my training buckler on the field. But that's the point. The point is that you're training at such a much higher weight that when you actually get out onto the field, the sword that you're using will feel just light, just feel light in your hands. You'll be able to move it no problem. The thing to remember when doing this is, uh, especially at first, you're not wanting to go at full speed. Because using that heavier weapon, if you're going at your full, you know, quick attack, it's real easy to accidentally hurt yourself, especially if you're, if something is wrong with your shot in a way that you might not notice with a smaller or with a lighter weapon. It's part of the reason why you want not just to build up this endurance, but it's going to teach you, even going at a slow speed, what works on your shot and what doesn't. Slower is faster, especially when you're just starting off. Think about the Miyagi method, right? You know, he had Daniel like start off by doing like the wax on, wax off. And then eventually they sped that up and it became the basis for the, the blocks that he was teaching him. But at first he was doing these slow motions, right? The slow circular motions. And that's the same idea here. If you're starting, if you're just starting fresh with a weighted weapon, you definitely want to start going slow because you're going to notice ways that you're throwing your shots that are are wrong 
that you wouldn't have noticed with a light weapon, like you were saying, like you'll be going through your motion. You'll be like, whoa, you know, my joint is really fighting itself at this point in my swing because of the way that I've got my arm twisted. I need to do it this way instead. And so starting off by going slow is great because it helps you figure out where your technique needs improvement. Now, then as you're going through this, if like after a year or two, uh, suddenly you're like that, like your, your technique is doing well. It's, this has gotten to such a point that you can do it in your sleep. Then you speed it up a little bit. And then once that gets too easy, you speed it up a little bit and you just kind of improve from there, but you want to start slow. Uh, otherwise you, you might hurt yourself because yeah, this stuff can weigh a lot and, and especially moving at speed. Now at this next level, it's even more important to take your time and make sure you know what you're doing, because if you're using your, like your weighted, uh, gear and it's not proving enough. You can add other weights to what you're doing. So one of the big ones I would do to recommend this is, especially if you do any armor fighting, if you plan on fighting in armor at any point, then you should train in your armor because that stuff is really, really heavy if, uh, if your body hasn't adjusted to it. Oh, and you also have different how much you can move, where you can move. Yeah, You will yep, learn... Yep when you suddenly have to bend over and you have a big piece of leather there that you didn't before. Yep. Kind of going back to the military step, uh, one of the things that was common for us when we were doing those great hunt hikes was to go in our full kit, was to go wearing our full armor. Because if you can hike up and down a mountain wearing full armor, running around on a flat field doesn't feel nearly as bad. I know Sir Rem has done similar of hiking and chainmail, which weighs way more than anything I've ever made armor-wise. Right. Yeah. And so that's the same thing here. If you, if you're starting to feel like you're running your Pell and you're, and it's not giving you a challenge anymore, train in armor. If that's not giving you a challenge anymore, throw on some ankle weights, throw on some, now the wrist weights you have to be careful with. The wrist is actually a very, 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 uh, delicate joint because it's got so much going on in it in terms of little bones. And so if you're using wrist weights, we advise that you do not fight with them on, because if you take a hit, to run of those wrist weights at the right angle, it can break your wrist really easily or sprain your wrist really easily just because of the nature of the wrist. But ankle weights are a really great way to challenge yourself when you're going through your bag drills and, and just to give yourself more of that spring, that explosiveness to your step um, when you're coming in. It's, it's huge. Uh, similar to the wrist weights, be careful moving. I mean, it's safer than wrist weights, but it is still way easier to roll your ankle if you have these weights on. Uh, we said that we were going to mention Goku, and this is kind of where I think Goku kind of has a little, a lot to answer for when it comes to people hurting themselves when they first start Belagarth, because they went, oh, he used the weighted clothes, I'm going to use the weighted clothes, and they go out on the field with this stuff, and I do not recommend that. Now, again, training with it in your, in your personal gym or training with it in your backyard or something like that is one thing where you have a lot more control. But using it on the actual field of battle, like that's not where it's where what it's made for. So again, that's just that's our grain of salt. Again, you can you, uh, we assume you're you're grown people and you can make your own decisions. But that's our recommendation as people who have hurt themselves using these on the field before. But yeah, that's that's a really great way to get it to the next level using the additional weights. Um, exercising morning and evening is a really great way to cement it into your body. Now, obviously, if you're doing this six days a week, you want to allow yourself at least one rest day to recover. But, you know, this the, the best way to get fit is to do it in the morning and the evening. When I was in the army, when they were trying to get us into, to, you know, battle shape, we would work out in the morning, we would work out in the evening. That was the, the times for PT. And that's when the, 
the body seems to be best able to deal with it in terms of like where you're at in your cycle and where you're, what you've been eating and that sort of thing. By evening, I mean like before supper, you don't want to eat a big supper and then go out there and try to run bag drills. That's going to, it's going to be bad, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's going to backfire on you. If you eat right before supper, you will eat hearty. Or if you work out right before supper, you can eat hearty. <laughs> if you eat right before supper, you're going to annoy your mom. That's right. You won't have an appetite. That's what I heard my whole childhood. You're not going to have an appetite. So lastly, on this subject, we want to talk about different types of posts, because I understand that not everybody has uh, a punching bag hanging in their garage. There's a couple of different things you can do here. You know, you can go out and get a nice square post and, you know, dig a hole and put it in the ground. Make sure that it's at least six feet tall. But yeah, you can actually like, that's what he did. That's what, what Vegetius is specifically recommending is uh, just going and sticking a post in the ground and using that to swing on. You know, probably a good idea to put padding on the post and on the weapon, just so you're not snapping your training weapon every five seconds. It also helps you put on just a little bit more weight and deal with a, a little bit more. One of the issues with like, for instance, I used to train by just swinging a normal dowel at like a tree or a fence or something like that. And I found that that wasn't very useful in training against other people because wood on wood is not the same as foam on flesh or as a blade on flesh or as anything like that. Flesh does not behave in the same way as wood. And that extra give uh, makes it so that like it, it, will, it will throw off the timing of your strikes if you get used to throwing shots with wood on wood. So we do recommend that you have padding on your post and also padding on your weapon because that's going to be more realistic for, for how your weapon will behave on the actual field. Also, just a thing to consider on this, because especially because I do know people who pell with their normal weapons, is something like a tree that has, especially you know, a tree out here that's going to have like bark. It's going to eat up your weapon a lot faster. You know, hitting your your standard weapon against uh, something with a bunch of big scratchy ponderosa pine bark is going to wear out the foam on your weapon or even just uh, hitting it against a pole hit foam against the weapon. So yes, you do want foam, but maybe have a different sword. Right, right. Yeah, and, and these are this is just a way to, to make it a little bit more realistic for for your training. Again, there's a lot of different type of posts. We, we talked about, uh, you know, you got the bag, you got the, the one you can drive into the ground. If you've got a, like a second story deck, you can go out and whack on the deck supports. Uh, heck, even the corner of a building, you know, if, if it's made out of, if it's got like, not like your regular siding or something that's going to pop off, but if you've got like a concrete building or something you can swing at, uh, something like that too. Really anything that's stationary, that's going to hold still and and just let you be able to work on it. I like the bag because the bag will start to swing as you're striking at it, which I find is more realistic for trying to, to for one, throw shots at a moving target and also try to, like, especially with stabs. You know, one of the issues with, with that I've had with stabs for most of my life is that you'll practice throwing stabs on a stationary target. And the second you start th starting to throw stabs against something that wiggles, you find that you can never land one that actually like hits properly. And it's because you've been practicing against something that doesn't move and nobody's just going to stand there and like, let you stab them. <laughs> like that's, that's not something that's going to happen very often. And so, uh, the punching bag I like for that in particular, because it helps me make sure that my stabs are, are that I'm aiming them correctly, that, that the angle is correctly when I, or correct when I'm coming in. I admittedly want to get one of those punching bags that actually looks like a dude. Like, what I've got is, you know, just a standard, like, 
punching bag and I don't use it very often. That's on me. But like if you get one that actually has, you know, here's a person. Uh, I know Turkey just made one kind of with the right shape. So like here's where the head is. So he could practice like making sure to go around those shots too. Right. And that's, that's even, that's even better in terms of like skill. Like if you can afford to pick up one of those, like, I think it's like an MMA dummy. That's like, they, they, they're made of like a fleshy rubber and they look like the upper torso of a human being. Those are great because then you can practice some of your more specific shoulder shots and, and practice avoiding the head. Or if you're just at home training with your baton and you want to just go to town on something, you can whack it in the head with your baton and it's quite satisfying. Anything else on the, on the post exercise or, or really initial training? No, I mean, we've covered variations of this before. Really what's important is that you were working out, that you were getting some kind of practice in. Even now when we can't practice, it's important. Especially to now. Yeah. yeah, especially now. That's that's a better word for it. It's important to do what you can. And what you can is uh, upkeep, really. Yep, 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 yep. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of our meat and potatoes. Next week we'll be talking about some more Vegetius, but I know Thumbs is eager to get to our battle because this is this is his baby this time around. He's been talking about wanting to do this one for a while. So uh, we are pleased to now bring you the death of Cyrus the Great. I've actually known I've wanted to do this battle since I first joined this podcast. But it's been impossible to do because it is one of the most important battles in history. And it legitimately might have never happened. Um, it, it, that quote that I said earlier, uh, you have to believe in history even when it's not true. It, it is so applicable to this battle. So this is the battle of the death, or, I mean, even you kept asking, like, oh, what's this battle called? And I had to be like, uh, there's not really a name for it. Like, there's no, this isn't the battle of the Granicus River or the battle of the Bulge. It's the death of Cyrus the Great. Because the main source we have for this battle is Herodotus, and Herodotus' history specifically. Herodotus is known as the father of history because he is one of the earliest attempts, the earliest attempt we have of someone to tell the history of the world without overly invoking the gods and telling it in a literary way as opposed to just kind of like a list of things happening, like the Babylon's, the Babylonian king list or something. Or using it strictly as propaganda or something like that. Yeah, you know, in this year I did this. And it, uh, he, but he is also known as the father of lies sometimes. Father of history, father of lies is the same person, which is amazing in its own way. Because he was, he was trying to entertain and he did have his own messages. And he, much like Vegetius, was very susceptible to what, would have been the most interesting way of doing things. He makes the admission when telling this story that he has like five other ways that he heard about how Cyrus died. He picked the one he thought, in his words, was most likely, but really he meant most interesting. The cool factor. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great story. So, I mean, I'm so glad he did. Uh, another source, Xenophon, which is about 100 years later, who wrote an entire 
history of Cyrus the Great says that Cyrus died in his sleep. But we have this fun battle, and especially since, as we talked about, when we talk about antiquity, it's harder to know what's true or not, or what happened, or even who Vegetius was, or if Vegetius existed, kind of gave me an excuse to do this story. So first of all, who was Cyrus the Great? Because he is one of the most important people in history that most people have never heard of. Or if you have heard of him, you're like, oh yeah, he was a guy back then. Sure. Cyrus the Great was the king of the uh, Achaemenid Persian Empire. Kind of the founder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Not the first king of Persia, but he took Persia from a backwater that no one had heard of to the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, and he was the greatest conqueror until Alexander the Great about two or three centuries later. The important thing to think about here is uh, a couple generations before uh, Cyrus takes over, the Neo-Assyrian Empire fell. The Assyrians had been the major power in the area for the better part of a thousand years at this point. Everything's kind of in chaos, there's a lot of question of who's going to take over, and out of nowhere, Cyrus leads his Persians, first taking over the Lydians, later taking over uh, Babylon itself, which is remarkable, taking over a bunch of Assyrian territories, and by the end of his life, huge empire. Now, uh, real quick, we uh, again, the history isn't very clear, on, on the specifics of this time period and even the, the details that it does go into, as you've said, uh, is kind of doubtable as to the, the, the true uh, accuracy of a lot of things. But would it be, could we say that the Persians conquered this empire simply because they had more numbers? Um, there's a whole lot of debate on this because for forever, forever, it was listed as the Persians had obscene amounts of numbers. We mostly know the Persians from later on in the Greco-Persian Wars, you know, the Battle of Thermopylae 300, where they claimed that there's 500,000 of them, there's a million of them. That's probably not true. Uh, large parts of it, later on, their massive numbers definitely became a thing as they had conquered the biggest empire the world had ever seen. I mean, when they invade Greece two generations after Cyrus, they're pulling in people from three, maybe four different continents. That's never happened before. So their numbers aren't as big as, you know, the endless hordes they're put at. They do have pretty good-sized numbers, uh, but they also just had, for whatever reason, the, the right advantage in a way that Rome would later on. Well, and I guess uh, kind of the, the the point of that question, it was supposed to be a leading question because, uh, you know, the point of this episode was the idea that training makes more of a difference than, uh, training and discipline make more of a difference than numbers or courage, right? And so in the, in the case of the, the Persians, and in the case of this empire, it was one of the first times that you actually had an attempt to standardize uh, not just the training, but also the equipment kind of across the way. It wasn't just a matter of like, well, you bring what you can, you bring what you can, and then we'll, we'll have an like a, a ragtag group of people who bring what they can. Like this, this was one of the, one of the first times an empire of this size was accomplished and you had like standardized weapons, standardized training procedures across like different. And again, once it got larger, that began to break down. But at this time in history, you absolutely had a, at a higher level of discipline and training uh, conceivably than their neighbors did for sure. 
Well, and if you really want to talk about learning stuff that came before, these were the this was the last empire that really did the ancient Near East style of war. The style that you would have seen in the Akkadians, you would have seen in the Babylonians, the Assyrians. They took everything that they had learned from these other cultures and in many cases took it a step further. Whether they were better than some of those armies is debatable, like who would have won against the Assyrians, it's hard to say. But they uh, they took that style and kind of took it to took it as far as it could go. We should say we know so little about what the Persian army of this time was. We have stuff on them later. Uh, we have great detail much, much later, a couple centuries later. We have bits and pieces from a generation or two later. This era, we have almost nothing. I mean, most of what we know of this isn't from Persian sources. It's from Greek sources talking about their enemies, the Persians. So, of course, it's going to be biased, I should say the Greeks loved Cyrus. They hated the Achaemenid Persian Empire, but they loved Cyrus. Everyone loved Cyrus. It's an interesting thing about it. But we can put a few things together from what we know about ancient Near East armies and from what we know about them later on. So this isn't 100% accurate to what the army would have been like, but we can make educated guesses. Ancient Near East army would have meant... Minimal armor, probably a uh, helmet of some kind, maybe a few breastplates here and there. Uh, higher ranked people definitely would have had some, but your average soldier, very minimal arming. They would have had probably a wicker shield as opposed to a metal shield of any kind. They would have had a spear, a short sword. And what's interesting about the Persians is they heavily favored archery. Assyrian armies had something like maybe up to half of their army was archers, probably more like a third. Some Persian armies were reputed later on to be up to 80% of their army was archers. That is a lot of arrows. Now, when you think about this, they could ease, that means you could easily have 10,000 archers. And each one of those archers carried about 100 arrows in their quiver. Like, that was the standard size. That means, and they, you know, they're firing three shots a minute. If you could get them in a sustained go, in an hour, you could fire a million arrows. Oh, yeah. That is an obscene amount. When they said, you know, it's the very famous 300, then we'll fight in the shade, that was an exaggeration later on. Whether they were that archery-heavy at this point, it's hard to say, but probably yes. Uh, archery was very effective against ancient Near East armies, because again, limited armor and those wicker shields wouldn't hold stuff off in the way that, you know, a big bronze or iron shield would. Or even wood. Even a wood shield is going to put up with more than wicker. By the time we get to this, Cyrus has been ruling for something like 40 years. He lived for a long time. He'd, he'd gone from being the king of Anshan, and I don't even know where Anshan is, and I really like the Achaemenid Persians, to king of the universe being his title. That's quite an, uh, a promotion. And, I mean, that was an old Akkadian title. He was pulling in a whole lot of other stuff, but... This is really gets 
the sign of how big he is. And later on in life, he decides that he wants to take on and conquer or control the Eurasian steppes, specifically owned by a tribe known as, I apologize if this is not pronounced correctly, the Masagatai. Now, the Eurasian steppes was a weird choice for Cyrus to go after because this was an entirely nomadic era. These days we would call it Mongolia. Or the stands. Or the stands, yes. Uh, this is the land that brought forth the Umanmanda, the Scythian, the Chimerians, the later on the Huns and the Mongols. This is a land that brings remarkably dangerous nomadic, usually uh, horse archers. And throughout all of the different tribes, there were variations, but horse archer tended to be the primary thing. And they were very hard. It was very hard to conquer this area because they didn't have cities for the most part. You know, it, it's one thing if you go to Greece, take over Athens. Hey, look, I control this area now. It's another to march into the Eurasian steppes and then, whoops, here's hoping for the best. So knowing this... Uh, Cyrus tries to kind of sneak his way in first. He proposes marriage to the warrior queen Tamiris, queen of the Masagatai. That is metal. Tamiris is everything you think of when you think of just an awesome Amazon warrioress. Uh, there are, I think it's uh, Herodotus that it claims that to get married as a Masagatai woman, you had to murder a man first, like kill a man in battle first. She is, and it's probably not true, but, you know, it really kind of puts, these are nomadic horse archers, they're raiders, they're tough, and she is the toughest and the coolest of them. And at this point, to to the other people, to the Babylonians at the time, Cyrus would have seemed like a barbarian, but to someone like uh, Tamiris, Cyrus would have seemed like city slicker. And like, hey, let's get married. Sure, you're like 60, but like, totally, we should get married for uh, no reason. Like, just because it'd be great. And she's like, well, okay, you clearly want to own my lands. You're clearly after my territory. What is wrong with you? I'm absolutely not going to do that. So he's like, okay, fine. I guess I'll just have to invade instead if you're not going to play it nice. He marches up to a river of the area, and I do not know the name of the river. I don't even know if it's ever just stated or just they got to this river. And he camps out at the river. He's starting to build a bridge and is uh, using the river as a defensive barrier as he's prepping. Tamiris doesn't want anything to do with this fight, but is super willing to have it if it's going to come up. So she tells him, look, I don't want to deal with this river. You don't want to deal with this river either. March back like 10 miles and set up your camp there and we'll come to you or cross the river. We won't bother you. March forward like 10 miles into our territory and you'll meet us. You know, basically, like, I won't make you have this fight, but if you want to have this fight, these are the two options that you have. Now, his, Cyrus's generals are debating it a lot, and they generally think that the best idea is to go back. Go back, stay in your own territory. It's a lot easier if you have to retreat to uh, 
to do this. But there is a a king or a former king of a territory that Cyrus has conquered named Croesus. Uh, the king's name is Croesus, who has become an advisor to Cyrus because Cyrus was theoretically did not kill if he could help it. Generally didn't kill off the kings of the territories that he took over. Preferred submission to execution. Yes, to the point that people say he's like the the adopter of hum- like the father of human rights, which is absolutely insane because it was you can do what you want as long as you listen to me or I will kill you was his version of human rights. But it was a lot better than the Assyrians who would just kill you and literally salt the earth around you. Progressive for the time. Yes, exactly. Progressive for the time is kind of the lesson of this podcast. And Croesus, who has become like a major advisor to Cyrus, and ever since people have been like, was that a good idea? The guy that you conquered? Uh, Also, real quick, Croesus is interesting because up to the Victorian age, there was a phrase, rich as Croesus. Actually, I've, I've heard that one before. Literally, this guy is so legendarily rich that 2,500 years later, we're still using him as an example of some rich dude. Which is, it blows my mind. But not super important to the story. Croesus is like, oh no, you absolutely, you can't retreat. I mean, if you go back 10 miles, it's going to look like you're running away. People are going to doubt you. You have to go out there and you have to take her on on her terms. Oh, that's terrible advice. And Cyrus is like, that sounds like great advice. No, Cyrus, no. And no one knows why. I mean, we don't even know why he wanted this. If he was going a little power mad or if it was kind of common at the time to occasionally, the Chinese would do this as well, go into the steppes, punch at the tribes a little bit, and then go back now that you've weakened them a little bit. Because you can't really conquer them. But Croesus comes up with a plan for Cyrus to go with here. And he goes, okay, so we're going to send a partial bit of the force out, and we're going to send them with a bunch of supplies and stuff. And we're going to make it look like it's the army. And then the Masakatai are going to come in, take out that group, and then we can come in on them because they're going to, you know, eat the food that we leave with these people and they're going to drink the drinks and we're going to catch them off guard. But the Masagatai kind of do the same thing. They don't send in their entire force to take out this small part of Cyrus's force. They send in, actually, uh, Tamiris' son, who's a major general, takes in a force, takes out those people, gets just rip-roaring drunk, according to legend here. Uh, Which is a common thing to do against tribal societies, really, in history. Get them drunk, because they're not really sure how to deal with wine, for the most part. Mongols had problems with it, Native Americans had problems with it. Uh, But they not only managed to take out this... Uh, the, the the Persians not only manage to capture these people in their trap, they take the son of Tamiris alive. Ah, hostage situation. That's huge. I mean, he is the future leader of this tribe. The uh, tribe uh, clan. Nomad and, and nation. I'm not sure what the... Thing. Nomad, yeah. 
And he also, at this point, has thought that he has destroyed a bigger part of the army than Cyrus has actually destroyed. He thinks that he's done this major victory. He basically took out a large-sized raiding party. Tamiris is now livid. Just absolutely livid. Understandably so. Her son has just been kidnapped. The son sobers up, and he's like, Oh my god. Oh, I've messed up so badly here. Oh, mom's gonna be so mad. Cyrus, man, you have to untie me. <laughs> and again, as we have covered here, Cyrus had a, a history of treating royalty pretty well. So, oh, you're my prisoner now, much like Croesus over there. Ha 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 ha. Uh, sure, I'll untie you. You know, thinking that he has him in a pretty good position. As soon as Tamiris' son, and I don't know the son's name, I'm sorry, is untied, he kills himself. Like, steals a guard's knife, stabs himself, dies. Brutal. Cyrus has now lost his biggest hostage, and if Tamiris was mad before, she's she is so much worse now. So mad. Because she had been sending messages like, I'll still let you live if you get me my son back, but otherwise you will die all the ways. Now, at this point... Cyrus is something like 10 to 15 miles inside her territory. There is absolutely no chance of this fight ending in anything other than a fight to the death. Now, as we said, we know very, very little about this fight itself. Other than the fact that, as we said, the Persians are a heavily archer-based culture for the most part. And the Masagatai come from an area where horse archery was like the way of life. There are other types of cavalry, there are non-cavalry people, but for the most part, the armies of the area traditionally consist of entirely of horse archers. Or mostly of horse archers. So when we say that this battle starts as a distance battle, that's not overly surprising. Uh, what is impressive is that it According to the legend, they shoot arch or they shoot arrows at each other until both sides have completely run out of arrows. When we're talking about the size of the of the troops that we're talking about and the number of arrows we carry, that is hundreds of thousand arrows have to be littering this battlefield, and neither side has a major advantage at this point, like of losses. But when you run out of arrows, the Persians are at a definite disadvantage because they are largely uh, foot troops. They had good cavalry, but mostly foot troops against what would have been a largely mounted army. Right. This is, this is a problem forever. This is a problem of facing tanks now. This is a problem of, I mean, Frederick the Great would have gone up against a mostly mounted army and been like, well, that's... That's not going to be great for me. Like, throughout history, these guys fight all day up until it goes dark. So they've been fighting for, like, 12 hours now. The Persians are being slowly, slowly wiped out. But they eventually just completely run out. It has been noted, even when the Persians lose, it is not because they're not well-trained or because they're not tough. Even even the Greeks who would have loved to be like, nope, they're all weeks. We're just, see how amazing we are? The Persians were tough. So this would have been a long, hard-fought battle. The end of it, though, according to Herodotus, this army has been wiped out to the man, including 
uh, Cyrus. Now, according to the legend, and this is, again, almost certainly not true, this specific part, but it's so good. Uh, Tobias had been talking this entire time of there is this, this thirst for blood that Cyrus has. Oh, you have this thirst for blood. So she finds Cyrus's body on the battlefield, cuts off his head, has someone fill a wineskin with blood, and say, like, oh, you were so thirsty for blood, now you will have your fill, and shoves the head in the, the wine blood skin bag. Dang. It is, like, the cover of a metal album level cool. Now, this is almost certainly not true, and we know this for a couple of reasons. One, if the entire army had died, there would have been nobody to tell this story to Herodotus. Correct. Two, we know where Cyrus's grave is. And then three, Alexander the Great actually talks about seeing Cyrus's body. And he makes no mention of it, you know, not having a head. It having been mutilated, which he would have noticed. Like, yeah, if, if it had been absolutely that badly mutilated, it would have... We would have other sources for it. Again, Herodotus was telling the best story for his audience. But it's such a good story that man oh i just have you you have to love it you have to believe history even when it's not true and like we've been saying like uh, we've been wanting to include this battle for a while because you know thumbs has been really really crazy about it but when you when you're dealing with a battle where you're like well it's probably not true we have to (laughs) put that in in a very specific spot and we don't know what either armies we don't know what either army looked like or yeah. And again, as we said, Xenophon says that Cyrus died in his sleep. Right. Which is probably more likely. So who knows? Much more likely. Or if he died on this battle. Because I mean, he would not be the only army to have been lost trying to take this by the Achaemenid Persians. Uh, there's no way the amazing warrior queen Tamiris cut off his head and shoved it in a white wine skin full of blood. But God, it's so much cooler to think about it that way. It is a cool story. But again, that's that's part of the reason why we're we're telling you guys right now because we do uh, try to provide <clears throat> as close to factual information as as you can. Every now and then, you gotta look at something that is more mythology than history, and and just enjoy it for what it is. I'm sure we'll go over the Eddas at some point, too, which are kind of in the same idea. You know, these are old stories written by the Vikings of these cool battles and everything, most of which, of course, have been told and retold by bards and made bigger and grander each time uh, so that the, you know, the, the characters barely resemble what they would have been in history, but they're still really cool, uh, the Icelandic Eddas. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go over those at some point, too, for the same thing. Oh. Cool battle though, cool battle, and uh, I guess I guess that goes to show you that you like. I don't know why we keep messing with the uh, the the nomad horse <laughs> archers. Uh, history has shown that messing with nomad horse archers just doesn't end well. I mean, the first group I mentioned, the Umanmanda, would have been the first time that they ever encountered, like the ancient Near East would have been ever encountered a primarily mounted army. 
And the Umin Manda translates into Akkadian to the horde from who knows where. <laughs> so we're talking about the descendants, really, of the horde from who knows where being a problem for the next, like, 3,000 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, every every empire, every civilization of the Western of the Western world was just terrified of, of nomad step archers. Even the Romans, who were, you know, largely unbeaten in most places, got thrashed by the Scythians and and really didn't go that far in that direction because they were like no nah, we, we're good we don't want to deal with like a primarily cavalry based army this is nuts and then you know europe all throughout the time of of vegetius's time was of course dealing with the threat of the the huns later on they would deal with the the mongolians within the same region just coming over wrecking kingdoms so so yeah this is a, a fairly common story throughout history um which is part of the reason it's believable being like no i could see it i, I could see it you know oh yeah <laughs> Mess around and find out, right? The next generation, Darius, uh, who is the next great Achaemenid Persian, absolutely loses an army going out doing the same thing. He doesn't go with them this time, but most of the army dies. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a it's a, it's a big issue. And uh, it's part of the reason that we are so strong about um, mobility as one of the, the biggest tactics um, that you should seek to cultivate. Uh, because it's like mobility is what won the day there. And it's what, what wins the day in a lot of these uneven matchups is because you have one army that is just so much more mobile than the other and can just be where it needs to be when it needs to be there. And it's huge. It's huge. And did you have anything else that you wanted to, uh, that you had? That was pretty good though. That's yeah, a fun story. No, I think that's about it. Read, read these stories, even if they're not true. Again, I'm not going to say that line again, but just... You still get stuff from them, and they're just so fun. They're so fun. And uh, I understand, like, hopefully by the time this comes out, I've become a little bit better about observing my discipline, yes. But uh, we should be having the little factoids back on the Instagram and Facebook. I've been kind of slacking for a little bit here. Uh, and, and we'll be kind of going over some more of this stuff as well. But today we've gone over uh, kind of the qualities that you want to be looking for, not just when selecting new recruits, but for qualities you want to see inside yourself, a certain fighting spirit and, uh, and, and a, a, an idea for training that will carry you past your plateau and to your next level. And then of course, uh, the, the basic training uh, techniques that we went over, the, the idea of the military step and the post exercises will help you develop those basics and maintain them throughout your fighting career. And then uh, of course, we've enjoyed this, this waxing into a combination of both mythology and history with the death of Cyrus the Great and the reminder that no matter how big or how good you are, you should never be cocky, never get cocky because that's when you fall. But yeah, as I said before, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook if you haven't had nearly enough Tao in your life. Uh, we've also got a, uh, a several sister programs uh, that you can you can check out as well on the Earverm Network. Yeah, you can listen to me talk about whatever nerdy thing comes across my mind over at General Nerdery. And of course, uh, Fried Squirms, the kind of mother podcast of the entire network, talking about horror movies and more more podcasts on the way at any given time. And um, and in addition to that, if you, you want to reach out to us, uh, have a conversation, you can, of course, message us on Instagram or Facebook. You can also email us, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. And this is the place you're going to want to send your player profiles as well, because we're still continuing that initiative. But I think for this week, this has been Yagamalark. 
and I'm Thumbs. Signing off.